And we're live. Hey, what's up? How hey, are you? Hey, thanks for having me on. <laughs> this is pleasure. awesome. My pleasure. Good to see you again. Great and good to see to, you. You know, when we first met, uh, I knew you were an author, and I knew that Chris Pratt was involved in doing that thing with you, and that you guys were working towards making a series, which is happening now, which yeah. is very exciting. Crazy. But uh, I'd never read any of your work until now. So getting ready for this, I actually listened to the audio book, which is really well done. The guy who reads it, what is his name? Ray Porter. He's fucking great. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. It's a little disturbing when he does a girl's voice. But <laughs> no getting around that. Like if a guy's doing a girl voice, especially putting an accent to it, there's yeah. like no getting around the creepy a, part of that. It's a little weird. But you you take but he's so good at like Russian accents and then uh South African accents yeah. and it's a really good book, man. Thank it's you. fucking riveting. Like it's Thank you. it's hard to put down. It's it's really good. And most of it I listen to either uh on workouts, walking, uh hikes with the dog, or in the sauna. Nice. <laughs> Perfect place to listen to it. I burned through it in a few days. Nice. It's, it's really good, man. Yeah, and you know like half the characters uh, are the one people that were inspired by actual people. I know. That <laughs> was what's crazy is like so many people, whether it was uh, you know, uh, John Dudley or Barklow yeah. or you know, Half Face Blades, like uh, Black Rifle Coffee, yeah. <laughs> Icon Four by Four. There's right. like so many different things. Sitka. Yeah. So yeah. many different things that It'd be I, strange not yeah. for me to for me not to talk about gear just because I was a gear guy before I went in the Navy and then of course in the SEAL teams you're like you, that's your time to shine and to like go down these rabbit holes and try to make the gear better or anything that's going to make you more effective and efficient on the battlefield. So you really get to go all in and then just after the military, same thing. I'm just a gear guy, so. It be strange just to say he pulled out a rifle you know or yeah. something like that i couldn't do it i just it wouldn't sit right when you were in the seal team did you think you were ever going to become an author is this something that you'd always had in the back of your head you would like to dabble in someday like yeah yeah it wasn't even a thing i was going to dabble in it was i was going to do it um and since i was a little kid my mom was a librarian so i grew up surrounded by books and this love of reading from a very early age and back then like so early 80s there's hardly anything written about seals uh but what there is written is a lot of times from fiction. So mm -hmm. protagonists in different stories by guys like Tom Clancy, David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, all these guys in the 80s who had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted to have in real life one day. And I enjoyed reading them so much, I knew that after the military, then I would write. So I just said, wow. that's going to be the path. So you had kind of mapped it out. Join the military first, join the SEALs, yep. and then after you retire, then and, and how many years were you in for? Uh, 20. You were in for 20. And then during that time, you would always mapped out that you were going to be an author when you were done. Yep. Yep. Wow. I didn't put any thought of it like while I was in, I wasn't writing, I wasn't practicing, but I was reading. So I'm first I'm a fan. I'm uh. always a reader, uh, both fiction and non. So all those guys I read in the eighties, those are like my professors in the art of storytelling. And then I coupled that with the academic study of warfare, uh, terrorism, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, and then the practical application from Afghanistan, from Iraq, and then it all kind of came together at the right time and place as, as I was getting out. So for that last like year, year and a half, then I started writing because I wasn't taking guys downrange anymore. My job was essentially to get out of the military. Uh, and because it's, you feel like you're the first person to do it, um, even though people do it every day, but you walk in and you need to get something signed or go to a meeting or get read out of a secret program or go to medical or dental. So your job becomes to get out of this gigantic bureaucracy. So uh, during How that time- How long did that take? That takes like a year. I mean, you can probably do it in a week. Really? Like Jocko didn't do any of it, from what I understand. He's just like, no. And he just left. <laughs> Like, <laughs> you know, but That's I didn't know so you could I didn't know that was an I know. He's I'm like, done. Yep, exactly. Bye. Yeah, he didn't do these transition classes you're supposed to do, and you sit there in these rooms and people drone on and on about transition and some options for you. And here, 
awful, horrible. But uh, but I did it. I thought you had to. So you get something signed and off you go. But yeah. Jocko you don't have do to do it? Well, I think you do. Just Jocko didn't. <laughs> like, he, like, that's what he told me. He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, well, who's going to tell him to do it? You know? Right. Like, yeah, no one. No, no one's one. going to say, you have to do this. Gonna get yeah, crushed. it's not good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It, it, so you were planning all along to write. And so during that time, while you were being deployed and while you're, you know, you're being a SEAL, in the back of your head, that was always a part of the plan. Yep. That was when I'm done with this, then I'll do that. So I wasn't thinking about like how to set it up. I mm -hmm. didn't know anyone in publishing, didn't know anything. But I knew that one day that's what I would do. And it wasn't even a question. But it you clearly had equal enthusiasm for being a SEAL as well. Yes. I mean, oh, yeah. You have That's to. That's why they had to be separate. So yeah. I had to be 100% all in on being a SEAL because you have to. That's mm -hmm. what you owe the guys under your command uh, when you're going down range. That's what you owe their families, the country, the mission. Uh, but when I got home from that last Iraq deployment and took a breath and looked around and saw, oh, my family needs me. I've been gone for quite some time. Uh, even when you're training. When you're training, you're out for three weeks here, two weeks there, a month there, getting ready to deploy. So it's not just the six to seven month deployments. It's all that time spent training up to go down range with your team. So I I knew that my family needed me. It's time to get out. So it was very clear. It wasn't a hard decision for mm. me. Plus, I'd I'd gotten to the end of my time where I would tactically lead guys on the battlefield. Uh, so that's a troop commander. So that's where Jocko was when he did his last deployment as a troop commander as an 04, which is a, a major in the other services, a lieutenant commander in the Navy. And after that, yeah, you're still a leader, but you're leading from behind, essentially. You're in the tactical operations center. You're more of a manager type leader. You're not out there kicking doors with the guys, uh, which is what we all come in to do, or most of us come in to do anyway. So I knew that that part of my life was over, and it was time to transition, take care of the family. So it's time to start writing. Did you take journalism classes or writing classes? or? Nope, it was all the reading, all that reading I did growing up. And uh, my mom introduced me to a guy named Joseph Campbell back in 1987. Oh, okay, sure. So he did uh, a series of interviews with Bill Moyers on PBS mm -hmm. called uh, The Power of Myth. And he wrote a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. So back in 1988, so I'm, I don't know, 11 years old or whatever, 12 years old, um, I get introduced to him. And I read that book. And I watched all those interviews, and I read the book that came out called The Power of Myth based on those interviews. And I think I applied that paradigm, that model of the hero's journey, the monolith, to really every, every movie I watched, every series I watched, every book I read from then on. And that really helped as I made the transition because I had this foundation. It wasn't just like I woke up one day and said, you know what? Can you make money at writing? Oh, that sounds like a good thing to do. I'll, I'll go back and read and I'll go back and see, kind of figure out the history of this genre. No, I already had that figured out because I did it my whole life. And it was that foundation. So that was already there. And while I was in the military, I kept reading for fun. I read those uh, fiction books still. And I discovered Stephen Hunter and Brad Thor and Vince Flynn and Daniel Silva and uh, and now Mark Graney today. So those are the kind of the, the, the kind of the bigger names in the genre. And But then I was also studying, studying all that nonfiction stuff, trying to stay up on my game to make my make the best decisions I possibly could under fire for the guys when it mattered. So I'm um, just always studying, always reading. When I was downrange, I never really watched a movie or played video games. It was always, if I wasn't out operating or we weren't uh, putting together a target package, I was reading. That's interesting because I, I would think that most people that would venture for and become a professional novelist, 
they would have some sort of background in writing, like some sort of education, some classical education, English literature or something. Yeah, no, it was all reading. It was all wow. knowing what I liked, knowing what I didn't like. And that's why the first novel is really all about revenge because that theme resonated with me. Obviously, it's resonated with people from the beginning of time, from telling those stories around campfires, usually uh, told in a way to pass on some sort of a lesson about something to the next generation so they don't have to learn the same lessons in blood, but they're told as a story and passed down that way. And I think that's, that's why there's so many Death Wish movies. That's yeah. why there's just, because <laughs> right, you can't, right. if someone cuts sure. you off in traffic, you can't go out and do something. Or someone, you know, at work, there's some politics, you don't get the promotion or whatever, you get mad. You can't do anything about it, but you can in the pages of a novel. You can escape there or you can escape in the movie theater and you can see somebody that goes out and gets this revenge and it makes you feel good because you know you can't do it. Because in real life, if you do it, you're going to go to jail, you're going to get the death penalty, it's not possible. But you can do it and you can explore all that in the pages of a fictional thriller. So uh, I think that's why it resonates with uh, with people and then in this particular case I got to take the emotions and feelings behind things I was involved in downrange and then just apply them to a fictional narrative so I didn't have to talk to somebody and say hey how did it feel to be a sniper in Ramadi in 2005 2006 and then filter that through whatever biases I had or whatever my Mm -hmm. past experience or whatever and then put it into a fictional narrative no I just took my experience and then just morphed it and put it into the narrative so it uh, ended up being very therapeutic so did you approach um, an agent first? Like, how did you get started? Thank goodness I didn't know you're supposed to do that because uh, <laughs> I'd probably still be looking for one today. So I did very little research on that front because I think that a lot of people can study how to do something too much or too long. And it's going to be different for everybody. But, you know, some people can study how to do something their whole life and never actually do it because uh, you only have a certain amount of bandwidth. And for me, I read, so Stephen Pressfield, who's become a great friend now, who's on this show um, a while back. He wrote, I love uh, that guy. He's so great. Yeah, he wrote Gates of Fire, uh, Legend of Bagger Vance, the Afghan campaign, and then has those series of books on creativity. The War of, War of Art. Is yeah. Just a you gave that classic. out to people, right, for a yeah, while? Yeah, I had a stack, stack of them mm-hmm. that I used to keep at the studio. Yeah, so he's... Uh, He's amazing. And actually, listening to him on this show uh, before I started writing gave me the idea of writing a one-word theme down to keep me on, on point. So I wrote Revenge for that first novel on a yellow sticky. But he didn't really say this on your show. He was talking about somebody else, who a playwright, who would write a sentence to keep him on theme. But somehow, through my filters, I heard him say, uh, oh, a one-word theme on a yellow sticky on my computer. And so I did the same thing. So it wasn't... <laughs> It's not really what he said on the show, but I took it as what he said, and I wrote mm. it down. And that really, for the first book, Revenge, second book, Redemption, and then fourth book, I morphed, or third book, I morphed it a little bit, Dark Side of Man. But uh, so those are the themes that really kept me on track. But and you're on the fourth one right now. You're on the fourth one. On yeah. How yep. long does it take you to do one? Uh, the first one can take as long as you want. Because you have to have, for fiction, you have to have the finished product. So for nonfiction, you can sell like an idea, a chapter, an outline, something like that. Like if you're coming from sports or politics, you know, you can sell that idea because they know they're going to get some sales. For this, you have to have the whole manuscript done. So the first one took about just shy of two years, um, and you get it as good as you can possibly get it. And then what you're supposed to do is go to an agent. But I didn't know that, thank goodness, um, because I didn't do I, I did that research I talked about with Stephen Pressfield's books on creativity, War of Art, Authentic Swing, uh, Turning Pro, Do the Work. I uh, read those. Read Stephen King's on writing. David That's Burrell's. great book too. Yeah, it's Stephen great. King's books so fantastic. Great, it's, yeah. it's, it's an autobiography, really. Yeah, it's not yeah. just about writing. Yeah. It's about his his entire life. Uh, David Morell's the successful novelist. And I think those were the, those were the main ones that I that I read. And then I was like, okay, got it. And I put those within sight of me in my computer, but I didn't touch them again. And I but they were there. 
So I would look to them for inspiration as far as, oh, Stephen Hunter says you're a professional, sorry, Stephen Pressfield says you're a professional, uh, you're a writer, you sit down and write. Uh, writer's block doesn't exist because it doesn't exist for dentists or truckers or doctors. Yeah. They don't get doctor's block, so you yeah. don't get writer's block, you're a professional and you write. So just having them that close uh, really helped with that transition and I made the decision to, now once I was a SEAL and now I write. Uh, so I think that really helped. But I didn't know you needed <laughs> you needed an agent. Um, and thank goodness I didn't because uh, otherwise, like I said, it'd still be looking for one because those are the gatekeepers essentially. Mm-hmm. And they have assistants that are even gatekeepers to them. So it's it's tough, I think. But lucky for me, um, a friend of mine sat next to a guy named Brad Thor who writes in this genre, uh, has a character called Scott Harvath, who's a former SEAL. And uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. My friend sat next to him at a one of these events for, to raise money for a SEAL foundation type thing. And as I'm writing, I'm about four months in, and my buddy says, hey, do you, want, do you know this guy named Brad Thor? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know him, but I've read all his stuff. And he said, do you want to talk to him? I know you're writing a book. And I said, yeah, I'd love to talk to him. That'd be, would he talk to me? And he said, yeah, that, I'll set it up. I helped him out with a couple things on, in his books. So sure enough, he sets it up. And actually, I'm up here at an event in L.A. at the time. I was trying to find a quiet place to, to have this call with Brad Thor. So I go to the parking lot at the, well, the Terranea Resort parking lot up there. Sun's beating down on my old <laughs> my Land Cruiser. Everything's off, though. The engine's off because it's so loud. And, and uh, I have my pen and paper are there. I'm sweating. But uh, sure enough, <laughs> we had this great call. And, and uh, it was like a job interview. I think he wanted to know, like, hey, why do you want to write? And I told him the same stuff I tell you or tell everybody that I grew up loving reading and knew I was going to do this one day and about my mom being a librarian and you know, knowing the history of this genre and all that and just being excited about it. He could sense the passion and he's like, all right, so if you write a book, what I can do for you, your friend told me some things you did in the SEAL teams and as a thank you for that, uh, I'll let my publisher know it's coming. I can't guarantee they'll open the package, can't guarantee they'll read one word, definitely can't guarantee that they'll like it, but as a thank you, I can let them know it's coming. And I said, that's all I need. And he said, how long till you're done? I said, one year from today. And so he's, wow. like, he's, he's like, all right, don't call me. How did don't you send know? me chapters. This is your first book. How did you know one year from today you'd be done? Because other guys that have serious characters have one book a year. And so I figured, well, <laughs> you know, doing, doing this sort of thing, I was about four months into it. So I was like, ah, give or take a couple months. So sure enough, I, uh, I called him back one year from the day. And he's like, but he said, hey, don't, don't call me. Don't send me chapters. I'm not going to give you any advice. Uh, and he did give me some advice on that call, but he didn't want me bugging him throughout the year, right. uh, which I totally understand now. Um, and called him back a year from, uh, from then and said, it's done. And to his credit, it was so awesome. He said, is it done or is it the best you can possibly make it? And I said, well, I could probably edit it a little bit, but it's finished. And he's like, all right, call me back again <laughs> when it's the best <laughs> you can possibly do. So I took another four months of reading it and editing it, sending it to a couple wow. of friends, and uh, then called him back four months later and said, this is the best I can possibly get it. And he said, all right, I'll let him know it's coming. So, so how many hours a day do you think you were putting in? Gosh, so it's not like hours. I mean, I would love to get on a discipline-type schedule, like a Jocko-type schedule someday, but uh, I'm not quite there yet, uh, especially at this stage where I'm still feel, I still feel like this is a startup and I can't say no to a lot of things. Um, I need to take advantage of emerging opportunities just like I would on the battlefield, uh, looking at the enemy, they're learning from us, we're learning from them. Uh, and it's really who adapts quicker. You're looking for those emerging opportunities, taking advantage of momentum, um, looking for gaps. Uh, so 
the same things that you would do for a startup or starting like a coffee shop somewhere, you have to do for writing. And I didn't really get that at the outset. Like how so? So I, you, you're not just writing and sending it to New York, which is what I thought up until about the time I published the first one. I thought you just went back and forth with an editor a little bit, and then you start the next book. Well, really, you have to do uh, advertising, branding, co-branding, your marketing stuff, your budgets, your social media, like anything you would have to do with any other business that you're starting up, you have to do as an author. Mm. So uh, so I kind of treated it as a startup and starting it like just like you're starting something in your garage and you're hungry and you're passionate and uh, you're seeing an opportunity here or there and, you're, and you just want to build this readership and uh, let people know that you have this character and see where it goes. So, uh, so it's been a, a sprint. So point being, uh, at some point, I think you get to a stage where you can say no and you don't have to sprint off in all these different directions uh, almost at the same time. Um, and you can say, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wake up. I'm going to write for four hours. And it doesn't matter if someone calls for an interview or if CNN wants you on or Fox News wants you on. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to do my four hours. And then after that, then I'll check my texts. Then I'll check my emails. And if something comes up, yeah, we can schedule it out maybe later in the week. But right now, it's just like, oh, really? Fox wants me on? Bam. I mean, I'm on. Mm. And then all of a sudden, now I'm not writing for those four hours right, in the morning. Right, so right. usually it's uh, the first novel and these and this, all the others uh, were really done between 10 at night and about four in the morning because that's the time it was quiet in our house with three kids, a dog, wife. And yeah, that's how I do stand-up writing too. <laughs> so, Same thing. When everyone's asleep, it's you do your best work. Because yeah. there's no one interrupting. Those but I have friends that feel like they can't work like that and they only work good if they get up in the morning and then write immediately. They write uh, no. even before breakfast. So I was getting up and working out like that up yeah. until up until the publication of the first book, and then things got a little crazy. The publicity stuff. And publicity all, stuff, yeah. and then writing late at night, also working on the next one, dialing that in, and then you're editing one while you're writing another. So you're kind oh, of juggling wow. at the same time when you're oh, on this Jesus. book a year uh, type program. That's what you're. That's what you're doing. Um, and maybe I'll get past that at some point. I'll have a end date, and then I'll start the next one. But right now, it's not uh, not quite like that yet. So my mornings were taken up with getting up early and not anymore. I need to get back after it. But in Park City, where we live, there's some crazy in-shape people out there. Yeah. And I happen to know a couple of them. So as soon as we moved out there after the Navy, they're like, hey, come come meet. We got to go work out. It's 530 in the morning. And I know Jocko's been up for two hours already. <laughs> but for me, that's pretty good. So waking up at five, getting down there and doing these crazy trail runs, CrossFit stuff, jumping in the pool, doing all sorts of crazy stuff that these guys put together. And it's like five or six CrossFit workouts meshed into one with trail running, with the endurance side. And uh, yeah. What, what group are you in with that's doing this? Is it a local gym or? Yeah, we go, we meet at the local gym, but uh, Hobie Darling, who is the CEO of Skull Candy, he's like all into human performance at all levels. Um, uh, emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, like being the best like human he can possibly be. Like, mm -hmm. like you, you love him. Uh, like, uh, and those he, guys are all out there? They're all out there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Eric Snyder is another another guy. Big uh, his Defender 110 is used in some of my videos. He's a big Defender guy. But uh, those guys are animals. They are animals. And get up with them, work out, get home, get the kids to school. So I had a schedule like that for a little bit. But then it all became, hey, when you're working until four in the morning and getting up an hour and a half later, mm -hmm. that's a little much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's always been a problem with comedy, you know. Because you have to go late. You're yeah. at the you're testing stuff out, and then you're mm -hmm. home, and maybe you get home, and then you're I making some. Home. Yeah. But then after you after you tested out something at the comedy club, you come home and make those notes. Yeah. Well, yeah. luckily now the way well now we can't do shit. But yeah. um, when this crisis, the COVID thing wasn't going on, what I would do is I would record my sets on my iPhone, and then on the way home I would listen to this set 
And then when I got home, either I would listen to it more or I would write. You know, sometimes I'd listen to it more and then take notes and then write and try to adjust or just write on completely different subjects. Okay. But I just got to a schedule where the best writing I was doing was when no one was home. Because yeah. I'd be writing and then I'd hear, Daddy, I got a question, or Daddy, or, or my wife would want to know something, or, you know, someone else would need something, or phones would ring. At 2 o'clock in the morning, no one's calling you. Exactly. It's, it's free. You're, yep. you're free. And then it's just quiet. Yes. And also it's creepy. <laughs> Something about the darkness is crazy. Like you have, your, your your thoughts are weirder. Yeah, but maybe it was a real hard time to get up and do like I would do like a ten a.m. jujitsu class. Right, that's and tough. when you're up at four and you crash and then try to get up six hours later or not even five hours later and then you get to the gym with a little bit of food in your stomach, you know, it was too hard. Oh yeah, and you, know? you just listen to yours or do you video? Uh, I just listen, but just video listen. is better. I really need like uh, Damon Wayans, who's a hilarious comedian, has a. Uh, a collection of every set that he's ever done since the 90s. Really? Yeah, he films everything. He brings a tripod and a fucking camera, and he sets it up in the back of the room and films every set he does. And then he edits it all himself on his computer. I'm like, damn. No way. That's next level. That is next level. And do you, do you ever look at, um, is there like, a, like for people on Amazon, you can leave reviews of books. Are there, like for Comedy Club, are there reviews of comics that go in there or anything um, like that? I don't know. I mean, maybe. That's good that you don't know then. Yeah, I don't read any of that shit. Yeah, you can't. It can't uh, it's, it's it's all at scale, right? When you get to a certain number, like the the number of people that are contacting you, like yeah. I'm at a place where I just I can't. No, it's like nine million something Instagram followers or whatever the fuck it is. It's like you can't. You, you just can't post read in your that. Day. You yeah. just get it, and it's not good for you. It's not good for you, positive or negative. Like just. You should know what you're doing. Get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for me, I feel like I need to thank everybody at this mm, point because yeah, I feel yeah, so yeah. fortunate that the books are resonating with people. Yeah. And really, this whole thing's been a grassroots. Like, it made this mm -hmm. third book made the New York Times list, and it made it without like a national news appearance or with any of these other bigger things. It was all great. It was hunters. It was tactical shooting people. It was readers that wow. took a risk on a new author and then told a friend. Uh, and then that person took a risk and told another friend. That's awesome. So it's crazy. And then these companies like Black Rifle Coffee, like those guys, like, you know, better known businesses or, you know, like Dudley, like those guys that posted, Andy Stumpf, like all those guys that hold, held it up and said, oh, I love mm -hmm. this. But it's still grassroots. And, yeah. And it's yeah. just like instead of around the water cooler at work, it's modern. Yeah. And so I feel like I need to get on and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate Because I do. I feel so fortunate and I really want to thank everyone. But I think I'm about at that stage where I can't, <laughs> where I can't do it anymore. I got to do a blanket. Thank you. Yeah. I, don't, I hope people don't think that I'm not thankful. That's oh, no. not, not the case. It's just for my own sanity. Oh, yeah. And I, I've seen people that do get really too into the comments and they lose their fucking mind. It's not healthy. Oh, yeah. You can't do I don't respond to anything negative. If mm -hmm. anything's like a little weird, I do the block. I'm yeah. very, I'm very, and I, I treat it like if I owned a general store in small town USA and I'm behind the counter, I own the place, somebody walks in and they ask for directions. And well, some drunk comes in screaming the N word. Yeah, different. <laughs> so you dip, you treat those people differently. Yeah, so, exactly. so the guy who wants directions and doesn't even want to buy anything, I mean, you're like, you, yeah. you treat the, hey, here's, the, here's how you get back to the interstate. Thanks sure. so much, you know? Right, right. And right. he has a good impression that he's yeah. left with. Or someone comes in and wants to buy a candy bar, a six pack, or whatever, you know, you just point him in the right direction, yeah. you make conversation. So I treat it kind of like that. Like I treat people on social media the same way I would if I was interacting with them the way we are right here, but just across the table at my my business local general store. 
store. Yeah. So I try to treat it like that, but I'm about at that point where there's too many people coming into the store, and <laughs> and I can't say hi to everybody. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I still am so sincerely thankful for everyone that took a risk on me as, uh, as I was starting this out. Yeah. Well, I can I can relate. I understand where you're coming from, and I I used to interact with people all the time online too. But then it got to the point where I was like, I see too many of my friends like getting mad about oh, things no. or. Or, or engaging back and forth and having these Twitter wars with people. And then I realized, like, this is the worst way to communicate ever. Yeah, you can't do you that. Know? It's just not a good it's, – it's also not – it's just not a good, effective way to express yourself with another human being if there's any sort of a dispute or disagreement about things. Like, the best way to express yourself is in person. Yeah. And I know you can't do that with everybody, but it's just – it's not you, – you only have so much time in the day. Oh, yeah. It's not va- – it's not – it's not a smart way to value your time. Oh, yeah. You know? No, it's that, it's that bandwidth. So mm. uh, I never worried about how hard it was to get out. Like, I didn't worry about how hard it was to get into the SEAL teams or get to, get to BUDS. All I knew that it, it was very hard. And that, for me, that was enough. So but it, it can like, be done. People yeah. have done it before. Yeah. Um, and so even growing up, even so in mid-80s, I'm still doing, like, what today people would call CrossFit. Uh, so I'd get home from school. I'd run the hill by the house. I'd go into the basketball hoop and then pull myself through, you know, and these kind of, you know, pull-up things. You know, we had a jungle gym in the backyard so i do some regular pull-ups there change my grip uh put a put a rope up in the backyard so i was doing that i had my bow out so i'd shoot for the high high heart rate and everything so i was doing all those things and then i was reading like zen and the art of archery um and i was reading all the nonfiction stuff on warfare and i was reading these those authors i talked about earlier that that whose genre i'm writing in today Uh, so i was doing all that stuff but i wasn't focused on how hard it was Mm. or oh maybe i'm not gonna make it am i good enough i'm like well i'm gonna get myself as good as i possibly can by doing all the things that I think I need to do. And now you can type in like Navy SEAL workout program and you, there's so many. You, you never yeah. really even it's yeah. hard to pick which one. Back then there was nothing, you know? So I'm like, what did I see? I see him running in the sand. I've seen a couple pictures like that. I see these guys in Vietnam with these guns and I'm like, okay, I've seen a couple movies and okay, what are you going to do? Okay, you're going to climb this tree. You're going to do this rope stuff, do these hill sprints. Uh, so I just did that. Uh, and Did you have like a program that you wrote out or did you just nope. wing it? Nope. Just as many. Kind Work of, out till yeah, you're tired. Which is very similar to actually when I got to the SEAL teams where it was pre-CrossFit days and all that. So you ran as far as you could, as fast as you could in sand. And then you came back and you lifted as heavy weights as you possibly could. Like that, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, 1980 encyclopedia of bodybuilding. Like that was the workout up until probably early 2000s. So early 2000s, what changed? Uh, CrossFit came on the scene. Mm. Uh, that was huge. Uh, we adapted or adopted it fairly quickly. CrossFit seems great until things go wrong. Seems what? great until your joints start going or your back starts going. Yeah, and by CrossFit, I just kind of mean functional fitness in general. Right. Yeah, I don't yeah. really mean the actual actual program. But uh, but first, yeah, those programs came out, and people would get on and say, oh, look, look at this thing. This is, this is new. Give it a shot with me. And it took a, it took a little bit of time, but some guys jumped right on. and uh, and But really what it showed us, and then right about that time also war kicks off and, and all that, and we realized, okay, you're at 10,000 feet in these mountains. You have a ruck on, your radio guy, you have an automatic weapon guy that has a ton of ammo. Um, then you're going, you're hitting this compound, and you're putting these ladders up, and then you're going through these windows, and sometimes there are these spaces you have to get into to clear where people are hiding or they're hiding weapons. Um, so encyclopedia bodybuilding and running as far as you could, as fast as you could in sand, uh, and that being all you did, um, there's probably a better way. So we're, yeah. really, we're kind of forced into it, uh, essentially. Do and, they do any work where they're monitoring heart rate and checking recovery and, you know, and trying to keep you at a certain heart rate while you're working? 
No, they might now. So I'm a little dated. So I got out in summer of 2016. And I know they were trying to modernize a lot of things as I was leaving for those last couple of years. But uh, so they, they, it's possible they do now. And one thing that, uh, that they did to uh, that incorporated a little technology was uh, in Hell Week, like when I went through with, uh, with Andy, um, they'd just pull you out of the surf and then they'd walk down the line and shine a flashlight in your eyes. And they'd say, okay, this guy is on the verge of hypothermia. He's about to die. Pull him out. Um, but then they have someone that looks totally fine. And then that person would just collapse as soon as like, the doctor walked by. So what they had people do is start to take these little RFID chips and swallow them. And so they'd walk down that line and they'd hit you with like the zapper from Walmart and they'd get your core body temperature. So it lasted what? for about like two days until you passed it. But for those first couple of days, that's how they did it. So you had an RFID chip in your swallow. stomach and then you shit it out after two days. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how they could tell your temperature? Yep. I don't know when they started doing that. They did, certainly didn't do it in 97 when, when I went there. That's what they're going to do with this fucking COVID virus shit. Maybe. They're going to make you swallow an RFID chip. Or put it, in your, put it under your skin I'm or something. I'm really worried about this tracking thing that they're trying to implement, that they're talking about how South Korea is doing that. They're giving up a little bit of personal liberty and freedom. And I'm like, you can kiss my ass. They're oh, giving yeah. up a little bit of privacy. Yeah. Like, no, oh, yeah. no, I'd rather wash my hands and stay home. Oh, Fuck yeah. off. Oh, no. yeah. And they're not going to give that yeah. back. Like, exactly. when the government takes something, Thank you. I don't know how many times they've actually given freedom None. back. None. Zero. Yeah. There's no way. Once they have that kind of surveillance where they can monitor you, they're tracking you, okay? So they can track everywhere you go and measure you versus all the other people that they know are infected. Did you come in contact with them? This guy's got a recent test. You don't. Like, you need to get a recent test. Now you're registered. Okay, now we're tracking you. And everywhere you go, you're going to be tracked. You're telling me when they come up with a vaccine, they're going to just drop that tracking and go, right. hey, go back to being completely free. Nope. Go back. No chance. No, nope. once they take those freedoms, like, you never, laws are never, I shouldn't say never, rarely taken yeah. off the books. Right. Every week you have people on talking about bills that they're sponsoring. Well, are they getting rid of another one to right. add that one? Or are you just adding, like, there's a book called Three Felonies a Day. And it talks about how a guy wakes up and the normal guy gets up in the morning goes to work, comes home, has dinner, puts the kids to bed. And unbeknownst to him, during that day, he has committed three felonies because there are so many laws on the books, you can't even keep track. The American Bar Association can't even tell you how many laws are on the books, state, local, federal, uh, international ones that play in, all sorts of different ordinances, laws, and you're breaking at least three of them a day to commit a felony. It's a fascinating book, and that they're not going to give those back. They're not going to give those freedoms back. I read a really disturbing thing today, and I'm not even sure if it's true, so we should find out right now. Clickety-clickety-click. Did the CDC stop tracking flu deaths for this year? Because this is what I read, and it might have been some wacko right-wing website that I was on, <laughs> so you never know. But um, – I was like, this can't be true because the real concern is that the CDC tracks flu and they find out that flu is lower or the same as COVID and why we're we making a big deal out of COVID and then, you know, people riot in the streets. That's why people can't, it's hard to tell who to trust. It's you hard. see yeah. two politicians and you see uh, you don't trust either side and you see everyone trying to make a power grab and use this as a way to make power or hurt an opponent or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Exactly. And yeah. even with, uh, yes, CDC, you don't know there. World Health Organization, you obviously can't tell there. You can't trust information coming out of other countries. So people at home are just like, what do I what do? I do? Safest thing to do is just to stay where I am. Uh, yeah. But you don't know who to trust. That's it's very thing. hard. It's very hard to figure out who to trust and Doctors are giving despair. What do we on their website? I'm seeing information uh, updated as of last week, April 18th. For flu deaths? For like, it's on the CDC weekly flu surveillance. Inf I mean, it's all of the flu information. I could so, how many people have died this year from the flu? Um, well, I have to 
to dig through here to find that information on a second. Because um, the COVID deaths are, what is it at now? 55,000, I think, something like that? For this country, yeah. I think it's more, right? Maybe 60,000 now? Closing in on that, yeah. Which is not a small number. It's a lot of people. But then you find out that, that that's a bad year for the flu. That's normal. But obviously, this year we've locked everybody down worldwide even and you know there's there's there has to be a slower spread because of this quarantining and because of the social distancing so you're i would uh, imagine you're getting far lower numbers than they would have gotten if everybody had just gone out into the streets oh yeah yeah no doubt about that but no doubt for for a flu uh, this is my understanding because in that fourth novel that i'm writing right now i was deep into the study of infectious diseases perfect for you, you perfect yeah, timing right? <laughs> it's crazy uh and then how you weaponize those infectious diseases uh what the japanese did prior to world war ii in that space how they used them in world war ii against the chinese what happened to that data afterward after the war uh the soviet program from the end of world war ii up to the collapse what happened to that information and then our programs today from the end of world war ii up to and continuing through today so i was i was keyed in to all that ahead of time and so it made me a little kind of hypersensitive to this mm. i've been talking to doctors people that had worked in that space doing my research uh but from obviously i'm not a doctor uh but from what I studied, the difference here is that the incubation period. So for us, so in the military, we go overseas and now we're fighting insurgents. And what do they look like? Well, they look like the people that aren't insurgents. Uh, what does that car look like that's pulling up to this, uh, this checkpoint? It looks like the one that didn't have a VBID in it. Or is that one looking a little low on the suspension? So they're not in a uniform. They're not driving a military type vehicle. So same with this. It's, it's like an insurgent that's adapted and it's adapted mm. to those other diseases and how we fought them. And it's adapted by the incubation period, by that nine days. So the flu, you get the flu, you're down, you know, you shouldn't go into work. If you show up at work, someone's like, bro, go home. You look like you look horrible. Get out of here. You're going to infect everybody. You don't know that with COVID-19. Right. So you go out there for this nine days, whatever it is, and you're infecting people during that time frame. So it's like that insurgent that hides amongst the, amongst the populace. Yeah. It's the same type of thing. Like they've adapted. SARS was different. The flu is different. All these other ones have been different. And that's the adaptation of this one is that you go out and you infect other people without knowing it. So that's the difference between it and the flu. So it's, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around when you just look at numbers. Um, but, it, but there is a difference in that uh, flu. You're staying home. You're sick. You know, it's, it's really in a lot of ways it's a perfect way to spread a virus because there's a there's a video game that my wife plays she used to play she doesn't play anymore now that this is going down but it was a, a virus video game really you, you send a virus throughout the world and the the key is if you make your virus too strong it's a video game you play on your iPad or your phone if you make the virus too strong it kills people too quickly and then it doesn't spread so the way you get a virus everywhere is you have one that sits in your system for a little bit and it's just weak in the beginning and slowly spreads its way across the world. And that's essentially what this is in a lot of ways. But this is this one's so weird, man. I mean, the, Newsweek actually had a story yesterday saying that they think it came from a lab. So now that that theory of whether or not it came from a laboratory, I think I tweeted it. I think I tweeted it. So you could find it on, on my Twitter page. But I was reading it yesterday. I'm like, okay. Newsweek, not really a sensationalistic publication. Right. When they're publishing something like that, you got to go, hmm, probably something to this. And there's a lot of speculation. 
I mean, it's not so hard to imagine. I mean, you're, you're talking about something that literally was a few blocks from the epicenter in Wuhan where they had that level four lab. Right. So the deal is with uh, like the video game your wife was playing, um, and that, that the goal of that game it sounds like was to infect the world to kill the world. But if that's not your Fucked goal, up game. If, if you have <laughs> if you have a goal and you want your country to survive, then you don't want it to become a exactly. global pandemic. You yeah. want it to hit the city, the country, whatever geographic area you want to hit with a weaponized uh, infectious disease. You want it to burn out in that city. So instead of going over and dropping bombs on it like uh, like World War II, uh, like firebombing Dresden or, or whatever else. Or Tokyo uh, and just destroying those cities. Well, you know what? After the war, you can go in with an infectious disease and you know it's burnt out and there's no damage. Yeah. Um, but you don't want it to spread throughout the whole world and come back to your own country. Uh, so when I lo- first looked at this and I heard about Wuhan, I heard that there was a, let's say, not a weapons lab maybe, but maybe it's a weapons lab, um, but at least a lab doing research in infectious diseases a couple miles from these wet markets where they're saying that this thing broke out. Um, there are cases in the former Soviet Union of them doing these this research into infectious diseases and weaponizing it and then having it get out because the protocols weren't followed or whatever else and kills a few people and they hush-hush it because it's uh, 1960-something or 1970-something. Uh, so there is precedent and it wouldn't be beyond the, beyond the pale to think that, oh, someone was doing some sort of research. And it doesn't yeah. even have to be weaponization. It can just be they're just studying this infectious disease, not even weaponizing it, and someone contracts it somehow in that lab and then brings it outside. Yeah, that's uh, the controversial theory. So here's the thing. The controversial experiments in Wuhan labs suspected of starting the coronavirus pandemic and says the case against a Wuhan lab. And so uh, it says why the Wuhan lab remains a suspect in the coronavirus investigation. I mean, it's really likely that we never really will know. Right. But they most certainly were working on viruses similar to this one right there. At the end of this article says there's another one called uh, RAT, R-A-T-G-13, which is very, very similar to the SARS-CoV-2 one that we're experiencing now. Oh, terrific. They share 96% <laughs> of the same genetic material. <sighs> Yeah. Wow. It's thought to be the most similar to SARS-CoV-2 of any known virus. The two share 96% of their genetic material. That 4% gap would still be a formidable gap for animal passage research, says Ralph Barrick, virologist, University of North Carolina, probably in bed with the Russians, Mm -hmm. who collaborated with, like, when you found out that a Harvard guy got arrested, that, uh... Because uh, he was uh, taking money from Russia, or excuse me, taking money from China, because he was uh, doing something with them. Yeah, I mean, it's real spooky. What's really spooky is the World Health Organization is essentially in bed with with China. Yeah. And they're not giving us 100% clear, detailed information. Everything gets filtered down through the Chinese propaganda system. Oh, sure. Very sure. dangerous. And they also were exceedingly – we don't know the numbers, right? And we can't trust China. But it seems like they were a little more prepared for this than we were uh, with as far as testing kits yes. goes and all that. Yes. So if you're doing research, if there's a lab where you're doing research similar to this close by, there there's a history uh, of other countries, maybe even China too, of doing research into infectious diseases, not following protocols that we would here in the United States. They're not all as, as safe as they are, shocker, here in the United States where we're doing the same type of research. Then it gets out and then they just happen to have uh, a lot of these kits ready to go for testing. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, in 2018, they were actually cited for violating safety protocols at that same lab in 2018. So they were they were 
there was concerns about that area long before. But what's really fucked up is the World Health Organization posted in January that, according to China, there is no evidence of person-to-person transmission of this disease. This is days after they knew for sure it was being transmitted from person to person. So China has been deceptive about this from the very beginning, and they think that if they were honest about it and that they they stopped everybody from leaving, it could have covered... They could have covered this in the point where it would have been 95% less. I saw that. Yeah, 95% less people would have gotten infected. Yeah, just lock down Wuhan, do, yeah. deal with it there as much as you can anyway. Let the rest of the world know. I mean, looking back, that seems like, but you're dealing with China. Same it's thing, so you know, you're dealing with Russia, you're dealing with some of these yeah, other countries Chi- like that. China seems the worst. It seems like the worst. <laughs> it does seem that way. It's, it's a perfect storm. It seems like, but the way they handle their own citizens, when their citizens are testing positive, there's this horrible video of this family being dragged out by these people in hazmat suits and they're trying to resist. These people are dragging them away because they tested positive. Oh, yeah. Once again, that government taking a little more control, a yes, little more control, a little exactly. more control. And we're just giving it up. And we give up so much. And even before this, obviously, we gave up so much information about ourselves voluntarily. Uh, we would, let's say in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we never would have given up. And now we're like, oh, click, accept. And yeah. uh, bam, there right. you go. Awesome. I can post a picture or whatever <laughs> it is. You know, this is fun. I can communicate with my friends. We're very accustomed to clicking on those user agreements. I yeah. know. No one can figure them out. It's, it's those 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 concern me, and obviously we've given up a lot of our information in terms of data, where we go, the map information, that kind of shit. But this tracking thing really freaks me the fuck out. It really does because they're going to find another reason why they should be able to track you. Once <laughs> once they do it because of the virus, and then and it'll just be next year. It'll be the flu. It'll they'll find reasons to keep fucking tracking you. To which, keep you safe. And you're like, oh, if you got you're not doing anything wrong, what are you worried about? Listen. When, as soon as someone says that, yeah. that's yeah, you're and, a fool. Yeah, antenna's got to go up, and you, you don't understand. You don't understand what this could mean. Look, the fucking mayor of Los Angeles is paying people to rat people out for not finding social distance, not uh, following social social distancing rules. Oh yeah, there was oh, an yeah. article in the fucking news, newspaper was saying that normally snitches get stitches, but here video. snitches get rewards. I saw that video. It's horrible. Do you oh, not my know gosh. about that guy's history? Never I know. It's crazy. It's just like, like, so for this third novel, I went to Russia to do some research. And I'd always wanted to go there. I knew that for this third one, because the first one- Did I, you go before or after- August, You so had before. written about Russia in your books. Uh, I was in the process of writing it. I was getting kind of closer to the end, uh, but I finished up edits- Gosh, I want to say Jan- this January. So I've only read Savage Son. Is okay. that- I didn't even read it. I listened to it. People get mad if you say you read an audio <laughs> I saw book. that the other they day when you mad. posted that. I know. They I saw it. I was mad. like, dang. <laughs> yeah, I guess because it's harder to read. Um, but so Savage Sun is the only one I've listened to. It, did you talk about Russia in the other books? In the second one, I did. It plays in in the geopolitics side. So the first one is really very. I wanted it to be very basic, very visceral, very primal right out of the gate because I knew that in New York, Simon and Schuster, all these big publishing houses, they see thousands of these things a year. So something needs to make this stand out. And a lot of that was the the personal experience from Iraq and Afghanistan morphed into the novel to make it feel real personal and, and mm-hmm. uh, visceral. Uh, so I wanted to come out swinging with that novel of revenge without constraint. So I'd, I'd done that research essentially just as part of my life uh, by going to Iraq, going to Afghanistan, all those sorts of things. Um, for the second one, I knew it had to be different. So I put Put in a lot of more of the geopolitics of what's going on with Russia, power struggles, uh, all this other, to make it a little different. Because I didn't want people saying, oh, he's just a one-trick pony. He just picked up this revenge thing. Now he drops it in Africa, drops it in, in China, drops it in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had to be different. It had to continue that hero's journey in this story of violent redemption. But I went to Mozambique as part of it to do that research. Because I knew, and this is before I even had a publishing deal. 
uh, I knew that, hey, John Grisham, he wrote A Time to Kill first, and he couldn't give that book away. And then he wrote The Firm, and that's the one that takes off with the movie with Tom Cruise. And then later, then they go back and they publish A Time to Kill. Matthew McConaughey makes the movie. Uh, but if he'd stopped at a time to kill, he'd probably still be practicing law uh, somewhere in Memphis. So mm. I knew I was always going to write to. So off I went to Mozambique to do that research, get that boots on the ground experience like I had in Iraq, had in Afghanistan already for the first novel, uh, had by living in San Diego, knowing LA, knowing New York, uh, and really being able to incorporate what I'd done already. But I hadn't been to Mozambique, had to go there. So I put boots on the ground and everybody over there wanted to tell me the story of their country, wanted to talk about the politics, wanted to talk about Chinese influence in the region uh, with mining operations, both legal and illegal, and the meat poaching that goes along to feed all the people in those mines, how that's mm. affecting the environment. So they just, that couldn't stop them from talking. It was great. And then for this third one, I thought it would be the same in Russia. So I wanted to go to Kamchatka Peninsula and uh, it, do a hunt, do a little fishing over there at the same time, but it's all part of the research. And uh, you can, for one month a year, you can get to Kamchatka Peninsula from Alaska. So you don't have to go from here to Germany or London and what then into, uh, for all of August. So you get in one flight a day. Uh, no, sorry, one flight a week. Only uh, in August. Only in August. Otherwise, you have to go all the way around the world. Uh, so Yikes. much better to fly to Anchorage than hop on a couple-hour flight, and next thing you know, you're in Russia. It's awesome. Um, but I thought it was going to be the same. I thought, you know, I'll land, I'll get to this remote backcountry place where we have these guides and all that, and I'll be able to really, and it's on the military installation because the people guiding us uh, used to have some connection to the government, so he has this hunting concession out there in the, in the backcountry. And I thought they'd all want to talk to me. And then I realized very quickly that for most of Russian history, if someone is asking you pointed questions, the kind that you'd ask if you're writing a political thriller, you were not long for this world. It was off the firing squad, gulag, off to Siberia, whatever. Uh, so they were very hesitant to talk to me. And I left all my computers behind because as soon as I walked through customs, I knew they was going to get everything sucked out of my phone and computer. Right. Uh, and I didn't know who, who sent things to me in email or text over the last 20 plus years. That, uh, yeah. who knows? So I just right. left all that behind, brought a pen and a paper. Uh, but I was asking these questions. And I, you know, I thought, oh, they can, you know, here's, here's my book, you know, they're going to know I'm an author. I'm just asking this. But no, they were very standoffish and very suspicious of why I was asking them these kind of questions. Uh, but it all worked out. I got some great stuff and got to weave that into the, to the third one. What kind of hunting did you do in Russia? So brown bear. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was crazy. What does brown bear taste like? Uh, I, I'll tell you that I don't know. Because uh, usually I follow, not usually, well, yeah, usually I follow the customs of the, the local people because I don't want to like show up and mm -hmm. be kind of the ugly American and show, oh, I'm better than you. You don't, right. uh, you know, you don't eat this, but I will. This is what we, so I kind of adopt what the locals do and uh, they don't eat the bear. No, they no. Didn't. interesting. I um, wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things that they don't. It's, well, a lot of times people, I mean, bear is amazing. I had the best bear this year. A black bear, um, a, a Brian Call gave me some. Mm, and, okay. Oh, Incredible! It was black the, bear's delicious. It was so good. I tell that to people, and they're like, "Shut the fuck up!" Like, my, my daughter got asked, "What's your favorite food?" She goes, "Bear." Yeah, and her friends were like, "What?" Amazing. Yeah, like it's probably not really her favorite food. I think she was probably <laughs> trying to shock her friends. I don't know that bla that black bear that uh, that Brian gave me is. Uh, I mean, it was canned. So it was just sitting canned. there for a while. Yeah, really? so it's this canned thing. So um, how did he make it? Uh, you know, so what do you boil it? And it's in the you know, yeah. Can, and how are you? Can Wayne Endicott something? from uh, the Bow Rack up in Springfield, Oregon, gave me some canned deer meat, and it was really good. Yeah, but it's really bottled. It's like bottled deer. Interesting. But, I haven't had bottled. I haven't had bottled deer before. But I'll tell you, bottled black bear. And if this maybe it was eating you know, blueberries or whatever. But it was, and it sat on our counter for. 
six months because my wife was like, mm, get the fuck out of here yeah, with this. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then we had all these guys came over, like guys from Total Archery Challenge and Yeti. We came over to the house. We did a wild game dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trevor Thompson came over. And oh. uh, so uh, we, we, we opened it up. And it was everyone's favorite. I really? wish we had more of it. What were the ingredients behind besides just the He bear? must have put a couple of some spices in there of some sort, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, it didn't look like it. You just open it up and it looked weird, but then you open it up and it all of a sudden was it looked a like filet mignon. Was it a metal can? Or no, like glass like you like would. A, like, a, a, like a bottle. Yeah. yeah like you would yeah. with a, uh, a jam. Yeah, same like as that. the deer that I had. Yeah. Same, like one of those vacuum sealed bottles. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. I want to go down there and get some more from him if he has any more. If he's listening, I'm going to come down and get some of that because that was legit. Yeah. And even my wife loved it. She's like, wow. this!" And as soon as you opened it up and it hit the air, it changed, like it changed. It didn't look like this murky thing that was in the jar. Like it looked beautiful. It was mm. amazing. We loved it. It was great. Everybody's favorite. It was awesome. Yeah, that's a weird thing. Like bear actually tastes good. People are so wrapped up in bears because of teddy bears. Yeah. They, they have this distorted perception of what a bear is. And people that have no problem eating cows have get mad at you if you eat a bear. Do you know how much nicer a cow is than a fucking bear? <laughs> I know cows don't eat their young, I don't think. They, they, well, they not only children. do they eat their children, they'll they'll <laughs> they kill other people's children and then the well other bears children rather and then the mother when I was in um uh Alberta uh my friend John and Jen, the, yeah. the people who run the camp out right. there, the rivets, okay. their son saw a male bear kill a cub and then the female bear chased the male bear away and then finished eating her cub it's amazing because he was eating her cub so she she ate her own cub right after she was defending it it becomes meat once they're dead yeah they're all cannibals it's crazy a lot of that stuff is is interesting how people have uh well associate bears with well and humans i mean they do look when you skin them they do look a little like humans sort of that someone looks like a fucking bear when they're dead like you, you've done something boy. awful with your body yeah it's a big boy you're not yeah. taking care of yourself but <laughs> steve Rinella calls it best he says that they're charismatic megafauna yeah that's and that it there's oh yeah there's some the animals right? that we have in our head that you're not supposed to eat and we we also i think we connect bears to uh what you would call trophy hunting meaning like someone who hunts lions something someone who hunts things you don't eat although Mountain lion apparently is very good. It's I've delicious. I've heard this. And I've, I've had friends. Yeah. And it's like their favorite food. Yeah, yeah. Donnie Vincent was saying. I've heard him here. He's talking about it's the best thing he's ever ever eaten. I guess. Yeah. And, and I, so I, I did my first one this year, and it was amazing. It was you incredible. had mountain lion. I didn't eat it because the guide didn't really was like it was like a no go. Same was, thing. Yeah. The guide wouldn't let you eat it. It was very clear to me that that was not something that was done. Uh, there, you know, I should have. Pu- I probably should have pushed it in Utah. So I probably should have pushed it. I could have pushed yeah, that one. Yeah, you should have pushed it. I feel bad about it now. It's hard to get a tag for them too. So it's not like it's easy to get. It some was mountain crazy. Lion steaks. It was wild. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, but the, back back to that that the, the bear experience was incredible, especially with someone that doesn't speak English. Like you're over there with this guy who's uh, that's really he was part of well in the military and then worked for the government and then is now the uh, sense of for the people just listening. You're doing air quotes. Air here. quotes. Yeah. So I, <laughs> anyway, really interesting. Um, but yeah, so got my bear and then, but the craziest part was my friend who got his and, uh, he wounded it first by accident, of course. And that happens like, we know, um, and it goes off into this thick, thick brush oh, and in the States. Cause I went and did another hunt in Alaska this year. Like they won't let you go in after a wounded bear, um, into the thick stuff. Like m- maybe some will, but my, from what I've, I've gleaned, they're going to go in and do it kind of like going in after a wounded leopard or something in, in Africa. Like the guides, that's where the guys are going to go earn it. Um, go and do that. So this thing's wounded and they hand me this rusty side by side shotgun 
that's at the bottom of this boat that we're in, this little tiny little boat that we're in on this river. And uh, the guy hands it to me and uh, then hands me two shells. And I'm looking at this what? rusty thing, and I'm having these two shells in my hand. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, no, because he had a, he had so a couple more. I'm like, no, give me some more. And I trained up for Africa with the double rifle. I went to FTW Ranch in Texas to get really good with the double rifle because I wanted to do a Cape Buffalo hunt the same way someone would have done it 100 years ago. So no optic, side by you know a, a double rifle. So it's a rifle, but it looks like a shotgun. So mm. Big big rounds. So there's and, two rounds. Yep, side then, by side. Interesting. And, and so you have two shots, but you have two other ones ready to go. And so you practice at FTW. You practice, and they have charging animals that are coming in after you, and you're just like you would in the military, changing mags. But this time you're getting two more in there and getting it back up. So wow. I trained hard for that. Uh, and so when he handed me this old rusty shotgun, um, and I think someone said, oh, that was made in an AK factory. And I was like, oh, okay, I feel better about this because I've, uh, I've seen a lot of AKs and I've seen a lot of them rusty and working. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have trust my, about to trust my life to this thing. And, uh, it's rusty and it's from a bottom of a boat and this guy doesn't even speak English. So bam, here we go. I'm off. How many shells did he Four. So, and I look at him just to make sure it's not like buckshot or something, so I can see that. Yeah, so I see that it's a slug. It feels like the double rifle I trained up so hard with to go to Africa, um, which was an amazing experience. Couldn't have written that one better. But uh, and off we go into the brush. So it's like they wouldn't let you do this in in the states. Like you're going into this thing, and you have a wounded, a huge bear, brown bear, and off you go. And it's just me, the guide, and my friend. And uh, this thing, it's all quiet. And I haven't felt this dialed in since Ramadi 06. Like I was on. And then, bam, this thing rears up like, I don't know, 15 yards away. Just oh, like a human. Like, and I just spin and boom, shot him like I would a person. Just right how, in the chest. how big was he? Ended up being over 10 feet. <laughs> yeah. I'll show you a picture after this. 10 foot tall bear. And, Jesus But even more Christ. than that was the size of the head. And I forget how well, I think they measured it, but I forget. It was huge. It was huge. I'll show you a picture after this. Um, so yeah, I shot it like it would a human. Then it goes, it goes running off like, I don't know, 20 yards or something like that into some more thick stuff. And then we hear a death bellow. But before we heard the death bellow, the guide in broken English was like, I'm going to go around the other side and I'm going to scare him towards you. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I do, I go around to the other side and I get down. I'm like, well, if it charges out, it's probably going to be on all legs and it's going to come charging like this. So I knelt down and then just got ready to, to put one in if it's coming charging at me. And I was trying to figure out, okay, face, mouth right here, you know, it was my yeah. first bear hunt. Um, so anyway, it, it, we heard the death bellow after that. And then God we and got damn. It. But it was, it was huge. It was crazy. That is such a different kind of hunting when you're hunting something that absolutely could tear you apart. Oh yeah. Like you're made out of tissue paper. Oh yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I'll show you the pic. Yeah, it's crazy. But what it surprised me was how much, it wasn't like Wild West over there where you said, oh, can I, can we go and get another bear? Can we do, it was very, like, no, you had your tag, just like you would in the States. It was all mm -hmm. science-based. We need to take this many out um, for the population. Like, it was just like the States, which well, surprised me. Well, must have me. a big business and people coming over there to hunt. They, yeah. they, they don't want to deplete the resources right. by Yeah, no, that's abandoning. exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, they're smart. But for some reason, that surprised me. I thought, oh, it's Russia. Because I'd been to Russia before. I'd been to Moscow. I'd been to Ukraine. I'd been to the catacombs for uh, earlier in life. And I wove those into, into the second novel. But uh, I, I just figured it would be kind of Wild West kind of like how I remembered it over in uh, in Ukraine and in mm. Moscow back in the early 90s and uh, it, it, but it wasn't it was all very much you have your tag no this is yours and and uh, we're not going to deviate from that you can't it's kind of interesting they wouldn't even entertain eating it yeah no and, and there's a language barrier there too 
So it's hard, especially when you're dealing with people that are tough. I mean, they're living in these huts built into the ground, essentially, uh, for insulation, uh, just south of Siberia. So Kamchatka is just south of Siberia, Um, but essentially the same same type of thing. And so they're built these uh, into these small hills for insulation. So, I mean, they're out there. Wow. And it's 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 a rough existence. Uh, so when they say we're not doing something and they say it in a way with this Russian accent and there's really, it's not really like, oh, let's talk about it. Right. <laughs> it's not, no. You would think that those people would want meat more than anybody, you know? I mean, you would think meat would be very valuable. And a 10-foot bear, you could feed so many goddamn people. Maybe that's why they told us we couldn't because they're keeping it. That's possible, oh, too. Oh, <laughs> that's possible. That's yeah. very possible. I would definitely not uh, yeah, discount that yeah, in the least. That's possible, yeah. But they have a ton of fish out there, moose, huge moose out there. A lot so of northern been, pike, right? Yeah, but, well, they have. Uh, they might, but we were at, after uh, Dolly Varden and uh, rainbow trout, brown trout. Oh, so wow. Some, some big ones out there. So it was, it was pretty crazy. It was a good trip. And I got to weave all that stuff in. So I got to weave in some of the people that I met over there. The snowmobiles they have over there have one skid in the front instead of the two. Huh. Yeah. So they, they're going through this taiga, this tundra. Oh, so, so it's tight. That, yeah. So, they, so they're only watching one getting hmm. hit by a root or something like that instead of the two. Um, so I got a lot of good stuff by going over there. And I wouldn't have known what to ask. I wanted to see the vehicles that they used over there. I was very happy to see some Land Cruisers, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but they had a whole bunch of other stuff, too, some Russian, some crazy Russian stuff, and I got to incorporate uh, incorporate those vehicles into the novel as well. So you really never know what you're going to get until you get on the ground, talk to people, build those relationships, and then yeah, things ended up end up waking, making their way into the stories. Have you ever seen that Werner Herzog documentary, Happy People, no. Life in the Taiga? No, yeah. I need to see that. It's, you need to see it. I wish really, I'd seen it before I read yeah, the third book. It's crazy. It's really good. It's and it's this amazing documentary about these people that live in the taiga in Russia, and uh, it shows them from being in the summertime uh, all the way through into being in the wintertime, and it just they're just hunters and gatherers, and they're so happy. It's really weird. It's really weird. Like there's no mental illness, there's no suicide, and everyone's just struggling. I mean, they're just every they're they're making their own skis. They're making their own homes. They're making their. Own, I mean, they have these cabins set up for trapping, and they use snowmobiles. And then they have dogs. They have a very tight relationship with their dogs, and they get fish and they get meat, and then that is that is what they eat. And they bring bread with them, and the bread's all frozen, obviously. So they have these loaves of bread. They bring. They store their cabins. They have to bear-proof everything. But it's just their life is so compatible with being a human being. Right. It's like there's something about our human reward systems that have evolved over thousands and thousands of years that being a hunter-gatherer just completely locks in with all the things that keep you content and happy. There's the documentary oh, nice. right now. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and, and very interesting, oh, the wow. relationships with their dogs. Oh, yeah, they the have, dogs over there were amazing. It's everything. Their dogs are everything. They have a, a huge, very, very tight relationship with their dogs. That's incredible. Yeah, the dogs that we had in the camp, they protected the camp from the bears. Mm-hmm. Like that was the bear protection was these dogs that were specifically trained up to chase bears off. Yeah. Um, I think I called the Lakita. I have to go back and look, but absolutely incredible dogs. They were amazing. It's a really amazing documentary. Absolutely one of oh, my wow. favorite. Yeah. There's another really interesting documentary. Uh, well, not a documentary. It's a vice guide to travel um, where uh, it's, I think it's called Heim. I think his name's Heimo. Uh, Haimo's Arctic Adventure, and it's a guy who got a job in Alaska in like the 1970s, and he owns the, he has like a lease to have a, a cabin out there 
in this very remote part of the Arctic. Yeah. And and once he's dead, like this is it. Like no one else can have goes back this to the government. Of, yeah, I don't think anybody else <laughs> is going to be allowed. But it's it's another amazing documentary. And he's a guy who's a really he's an American guy who's. Uh, Really articulate, very interesting guy, very intelligent guy who loves living like this. Yeah. And he raised his family out there, and his his wife is uh, American Eskimo, and it's just a fucking amazing way of life. I don't want to live. I don't want to <laughs> live like that. I mean, I like cities. I like cars. <laughs> I like all that stuff. But there's something incredibly compelling about being completely reliant on nature and your own, you know, ingenuity and hard work and. He was talking about it in this documentary where the the Vice people. This is back when Vice was, you know, just starting out too. This Vice Guide to Travel was like one of their earlier series that they were doing on uh, on YouTube, and it's it's really cool when you're seeing this guy who's this reporter who has no experience like this at all inter interacting with this guy and him explaining his life and why he lives like this yeah. and why it's so important to him and. That, yeah, I think maybe that's why people find their way back to nature in some way, shape, or form. Like yeah. they want a cabin somewhere. Mm -hmm. They they like going to the mountains. They like going to Big Sky. They like going to Park City. That's the dream like for they, people. Yeah, I think yeah. they like. But it's still nice to be able to you know drive in and go to the grocery store. It's nice when, to go to a restaurant. You know, it is not well. The one <laughs> but it's good to be real. prepared. Like who's yes. looking smart now? Exactly. Like, that guy might not even know what's going on, but uh, he doesn't even need to. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. For the people, I think also this was a little bit of a wake up call for people as far as how soft we've gotten generally as a people and i'll say from the end of world war ii for those guys that came back and got back to work didn't complain uh and built this country into what it is today but uh since then we've gotten a little soft and I think yeah. people are like oh wait a second um i maybe it would have been better had i had like a week of food or maybe i would have had um you know maybe it, do i need a gun do i have a gun in the house and oh we do it's in that safe and i haven't shot it in years or it was gave to me, my dad gave it to me maybe i should learn how to maybe use it in case the police aren't there for me when I need them to or do we have fire extinguishers in the house do we know how to use them are those things expired do the kids know how to use them like all those little yes. types of questions but once again gets back to bandwidth so if you're worried about that stuff you know what you're not worried about how do you adapt your business how do you adapt to having your family at home and moving forward here when maybe you don't have a job anymore and you need to get creative um, so you're worried instead about oh how many beans are in the, the cap but instead if you had, uh, oh, we have three. And everybody's experience is going to be different, like mm -hmm. what they're comfortable with as far as their levels of preparedness. And it's not really about being paranoid. It's just allowing you to focus elsewhere if there's a natural disaster here in California, like an earthquake, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other places, you know, tsunami, whatever, whatever it is, uh, hurricanes, whatever. Um, it, it allows you then to focus where you need to be focused. Uh, and some people will be like, oh, three days of food and maybe a little water. And, uh, do I need something to filter water with in case I turn on the tap and there's nothing that comes out, it's brown. Um, so everybody's level is going to be different. But I think this was a wake-up call. And I'm not super confident that people going forward will uh, take those lessons and act on them because that's what's important. Most will slide right back <laughs> into complacency. Unfortunately, I think that you're that you're right. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because my wife was like, ah, oh, now I see why we have all this stuff. And, you know, it's not crazy stuff. Stuff, but it's just like I like being prepared. It's yeah. not just from being a SEAL. It's from before that. I've always been drawn to the outdoors and wanting to be prepared and know how to uh, to live out there, survive, or whatever else. I've just been. It's always been a part of me. So uh, it's very natural for us to have a couple guns, have some ammo, have some water, have some food. Uh, because when this hit, you know what I did? 
book was coming out and I had to figure out how to adapt very quickly to the changing environment and launch it. In an, to me, it was very important to do it in an appropriate way and do as much good as I could uh, at the same time by helping independent bookstores who have no foot traffic, that sort of thing. But very quickly, I had to take that breath, look around and adapt. Uh, and uh, I didn't have to worry about food or water or filtration systems or ammo or protecting you my family. Yeah. We already had that. Uh, yeah. So I got to put all my effort into figuring out how to adapt to these changing conditions. Did you get a lot of questions from people like, how do I get a gun? Yes. A lot of California people. <laughs> <laughs> the lines around the block out uh -huh. here in front of gun stores were hilarious. They didn't realize you couldn't just walk in. They've heard what? about this loophole. Where, how can I, what, where's that loophole that they keep yeah. talking about? How do I just get one of these? No. no and I can't no even loophole. loan you one because yeah. if I loan you one and you walk more than, what, 20 yards away or whatever, now it's an illegal transfer of a firearm. Yeah. So, sorry, I might have 300 of them, but guess who's not getting any? You, because <laughs> <laughs> you didn't prepare, and uh, I don't want to be a felon. Well, there's also so many people that were anti-gun that now want a gun. I mean, it is hilarious. It's it's really interesting to yeah. see. Like this is where well, people are protected, and when societies weren't running great, and we, you know, up until this pandemic, at least, we had a, a wonderful society. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, there are problems with every society. There's, it's certainly not perfect, and there's certainly a lot of crime, and certainly, certainly, there's things wrong. But however, it is absolutely the best time in history yes. to be a human being and to yeah. be alive, especially so, in this country. And so many people are like, why would you need a gun? No one needs a gun. The First Amendment's bullshit. We need to take all the guns. Now that the pandemic hits, those same people are like, oh, hey, okay, <laughs> now I get it. There's yeah. not enough cops in the world to deal with riots. If, if, if there's mass riots in the street and people are breaking into people's houses and the world becomes lawless because the economy has absolutely collapsed and people that were maybe like a little bit sketchy just go on to become a full-on criminal. That is absolutely inside the realm of possibility. And oh, yeah. we, we need to recognize that. And the people that were anti-gun there is i mean a great percentage of them now are saying to me like i either i want a gun or i get it or how do i get a gun or how do i train yeah. like i see those videos of you training how do you train with a gun where do you go how do you how to just start and all these questions where do you hunt like mm -hmm. the, the the google searches on hunting must be through the roof i would think so i would think so because if you're worried about food like my friend went to the grocery store right after the big thing hit and uh, everything was shut down he said all i could find was one package of ground beef yeah, yeah that's said, well, we're definitely on. not worried about yeah you're not worried I know, about I said, that come over here man i got three got commercial freezers, freezers. Yeah. i'll hook you up i'll give you I, i've been giving a lot of my friends meat yeah. i love doing it I, 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 this is all i ask send me a picture of your food i love nice. it i just oh, want to awesome. see want to see what it looks like when you cook it yeah i mean yeah. this isn't the first time this is the first time that you've been somewhere else and you've been able to it's not L.A. riots, and you're seeing the Korean shopkeepers defending their stores. Yeah. It's not Katrina, where you're hearing a few things about the police not uh, maybe confiscating firearms there, uh, but then not not being able to protect yourself. Right. But, you know, if you live in you know Montana or you're maybe you're in upstate New York or whatever, and you're, you're seeing that on the news, and then you go back to making your dinner and having whatever, uh, it's not real. Now this one, I think, was real for more people. For everybody. Yeah. Because the whole country's locked down. Even Montana, which has a very low number of deaths and yeah. a very low number of infections, still has statewide social distancing rules. Mm -hmm. uh, the Mediator crew, those guys are all doing their podcast uh, from their homes yeah. remotely. Yeah, it's, no, it's uh, a different deal. This drove it home for people, yeah, I think. It did. It, but, it drove home the vulnerability, and I think this is a good dry run because this is... And I don't want to disrespect anybody who's died or anybody who's got sick, but this is not the worst pandemic the the world's ever experienced. It's not. 
it's 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 not nearly as bad as like the 1918 Spanish flu, which killed 50 million people worldwide. So this is a, a smaller number, still bad, smaller number. But this is a wake up call that this kind of thing is a real possibility. And then take this and then couple it with, OK, uh, a terrorist attack or take this and couple it with a natural disaster. Uh, now you have two things going on. Now you have a pandemic, and now you have a huge earthquake here in California. Yeah. You have fires, you have a tsunami, whatever it is. Um, so you have, have those things, or civil unrest somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so then we, that's three things now. Yeah. Uh, choose, one of the, choose any of those. Or maybe someone's watching, and this is the time because we're weak, and you get hit with a cyber attack from somewhere. Now all of a sudden you're at home and your credit cards don't work. All this data has been gathered over the last 10, 15 years on people, credit card information. I mean, they're building in China all these huge fields of uh, that collect data, huge hard mm. drives essentially that collect data. So now you're at home and you want to order from your, your Whole Foods delivers or whatever. Oh, not working. Credit oh, cards. Try done. this next one. Oh, this one's not working. Now what do you do? So right. there's all, so it, it can get worse. It and, can get a lot uh, worse. And, yeah. and but being prepared, uh, it's just a little bit. You don't have to get crazy, but it'd be nice to prepare to defend your family. For me, as a husband, father, I feel that's my responsibility as a citizen. Uh, that's my responsibility. That's that's one of my jobs is to be able to prepare my family for their and and defend my family if need be. Um, so my my family might be maybe a little bit different, but uh, you know, my wife's been to Thunder Ranch up in Oregon, training on uh, both pistols and ARs up there. Our daughter's <laughs> been hunting since she's seven. You know, she's very comfortable with firearms. Um, but it's just natural, and I think it's just natural for us as people to want to protect that the greatest gift of life and yeah. not just ours but those that we love as well so well, it's, i think it seemed like it was not inside the real world of problems that most people are going to have to deal with before this and now that they've seen like oh the 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 actual structure of our civilization is very thin the the, the veil that keeps you from bad things happening is very small and it's just we lived in this nice little Goldilocks zone where nothing was happening, where there wasn't any pandemics. There wasn't any state like besides 9-11, there's no real attacks on American soil other than that one day. So you look at the United States over this long period of time, you're like, wow, this is like the most amazing time ever to be alive and everything's going so great. This is just how it's going to be now forever. And then something like this happens and people realize like, oh. And especially, I feel terrible for the people that work hard every day and then their job's taken away from them. That's no fault of their own. They're not right. lazy. They're, they're not drug addicts. They're not, they didn't gamble it all away. One day they woke up and the world had changed and now they don't have food money. It's tough. It's That's fucking tough. hard. And it's, uh, yeah, it's also one of the, well, it's the other piece when we talk about being prepared. It's the one that often gets overlooked when you're talking about preparedness is that financial security yes. piece. So, yes. and for everybody, it's going to be, going to be different. Is it uh, one month worth of bills? Is it two? Is it three? That's what mm -hmm. the experts say or whatever. Uh, everyone's going to be different, but it's important, I think, going forward for people to realize if they weren't prepared financially for this, that going forward, they need to start putting a little bit away. They need to talk to somebody about yes. how they best can do yes. that um, because things aren't always going to be rose. You're going to face adversity in life. Mm -hmm. And we're just like we're facing it as a country now, like, yeah, you're going to face it in life as well. It doesn't have to be a pandemic. You could just lose your job. Yeah. Uh, or something could happen to a family member, whatever it may be. Uh, it doesn't need to be a pandemic or a terrorist attack or anything, these global calamities. Uh, it can just be you losing your job or getting yeah. sick or whatever it may be. So having that foundation of financial security, uh, hopefully that's one of those notes people are taking 
from this going forward so they can be better prepared, uh, not just for any of these calamities we're talking about, but just for normal everyday life. Because yeah. you're going to get hit, you're going to get knocked down, and you're going to have to get up and keep moving forward. And you know what's going to help you with that is not wasting bandwidth on figuring out where that ne- how you're going to pay that next bill because you're prepared ahead of time. Yeah. Just a little bit. I hope all people also recognize that if you're in a, je- a dead-end job and you've been just playing it safe – and then it got taken away from you because of this pandemic. And even though you played it safe and you did this, this terrible job that sucks, like you realize, like, maybe I should have chased my dream. You know, that. maybe there's a chance. I mean, like a guy like you who takes. But I want to get back to this because we never really we never really finished how the book got. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you talked about how you wrote it. We got on some ta- tangents. Yeah, we, we did go on a tangent. But that that your story is one of the great American success stories. I mean, that is the story. The story is the guy has a dream or the woman has a dream, whoever works hard and then one day figures out a way to make it happen. That's it. And that's what you did. That's it. And I didn't, that whole thing about just not worried about it not happening. Uh, I I mean, it can always not happen. It's good to have contingency plans for sure. Um, I had, I didn't have any specific contingency plans, but I, I, I knew I was I was going to be okay. But you, when you sent was... it off, I want to get to the I want to get a lot of things. I want to yeah. ask you how you created Reese, how you created these characters. But when you sent it off, like what does it feel like when you spent a year and what eight months or something? Yeah, a year and four months first, and then another four months to edit, and then you're like, all right, and you send it off. What it is was... that? What is that feeling like? It was awesome. It was awesome. I went to Coronado, California. I went to the UPS store on uh, on the main street there called Orange Avenue, and I uh, wanted to get next day air, tracking, you know, everything, insurance, yeah. whatever you could possibly do. And, uh, and I'm sure they, you had other copies of it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's all perfect. And what I found out when I, from taking those notes in the car when I was talking to Brad Thor, I found out how Emily Bessler, who is his editor, who is Vince Flynn's editor, who did the Mitch Rapp series, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but he wrote a book called Term Limits in the late 90s that uh, really defined the modern political thriller. Um, so I knew the font that she liked. I knew the spacing that she liked. Um, and also what I made it spacing perfect. does she like? It was, aer- <laughs> it was like Ariel two and a half. It's in my old, it's in my old notes. Now it doesn't matter so much, but, uh, back then I wanted to make it as, I wanted to do everything I possibly could to increase my chances of success or making her not just look at it and have anything, even if it was just psychological, like, Oh, it's in the wrong font. I don't Did like. you specifically like juice up the beginning chapter, the first chapter, just to make it very riveting? Yes. Grabber. Yep. Keeper. Absolutely. Yep. You Cause I, cause I knew what I liked and I right. knew what I liked reading and I knew I liked sniper stuff and I had mm-hmm. that background and I could weave all that in there and you know I didn't just say he's walking in in shoes you know they're Solomon boots why because right. that's what I use downrange or you know right. why is he in Sika gear because well my buddy John Hart started Sika and also it would make him blend in to that environment so he's not yeah. dressed in military stuff in the beginning so I needed to do all these sorts of sorts of things that were very natural to do um, and uh, and get him to, to a place where the reader wants to turn the page right. like, how do I make the reader want to turn to that next chapter and want to keep them up at night how do I make them want to go through the entire night to finish this thing did you spend the most time on the first chapter because of that nope i think it was all pretty very pretty much the same on every chapter i would say uh when you go back to edits is really where you spend uh time dialing it in and gosh i'm trying to remember there weren't very many edits on the first one from new york i thought there was going to be a ton but because maybe it was because I had that yellow sticky from listening to your, your show with Stephen Pressfield, That's and crazy. I had that thing that said revenge. I tied every single paragraph, chapter, whatever, had to directly or more importantly indirectly tie back to that theme to keep the reader going. Uh, mm. Same thing with the second one. I had to directly or indirectly tie back to redemption somehow, even if it was very subtle. What so was that the theme for on Savage Son? The Dark Side of Man. 
So it uh, explores the, the hunter versus hunted dynamic through the dark side of man. So really finding out, hey, is James Reese the protagonist? Is he a, is he a killer? Uh, is, he a, is he a soldier? Um, you know, what, what is he? Is he a hunter? Or is he all three of these things? Um, so exploring that, because a lot of us are drawn to these, to these jobs where we're defending our country, defending the guys to our right and left when we're downrange. So why are we doing that? Is it because of his country? Well, people have been doing this from the beginning of time. They've been defending the tribe. They've been picking up the same type of weapons to provide meals for that, for that tribe. They've been passing down lessons on how to hunt and how to defeat other tribes in battle um, to ensure the, the success and the continuation of their bloodline. Mm. Um, so why are we still doing that today? Is it all forgotten country? Or is there something more? And so that's what I was really exploring with uh, with the other one, but but the third one. But uh, but yeah, the important thing is to get to the end of that chapter and to have the person want to turn the page and to mm. look forward, and also to establish a relationship with the character. Like I knew creating James Reese, I wanted him to be a likable guy. Like I, I don't want people people don't want to spend time with someone they don't like. That's like why would you do that? So I wanted people to invest in this character to like him, to want to sit down and have a beer with him. Uh, but also he needed to have that background, the training, the experience to be able to flip that switch when everything's taken away and essentially become the terrorist, become the insurgent that he'd been fighting for the last, at that point, 16 years at war and use those tactics, techniques, and procedures that work so well against us from the enemy side in Iraq and Afghanistan and use those here on the home front. So it's a little—it's more than just a story of revenge, that first one. It's really also about someone who comes home and brings the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan home to people who have been sending young men and women to their deaths for close to 20 years now. Uh, so it's, so it's, you can read it at a couple of different levels depending on how much you want, how, much, how deep you want to go into it. Now, when you sent it to her, how long did it take before they responded? Almost immediately. Really? Yeah, it was so cool. So I sent it off. I'm super excited. Uh, get, I, I totally remember because after I put it in, after I mailed it, I'm in the street walking back to the Land Cruiser, and this, this crazy lady walks out into the street from around the corner in this nightgown, and I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, there's a there's a dead rat in my house. Can you help me? And I'm like, what? And it's it was right there, like 50 feet away, and I couldn't say no. So I, I remember this vividly that I sent this off, sent the, had my, my lifetime dream. I get it in the mail to Emily Bessler at Simon & Schuster, and off it goes, and I'm taking that breath, and I take a couple steps towards the car, and this lady runs around the corner like in a in just this frantic look in her eye, and I'm like, yeah, I'll help you. And so I went into this house, and it was like this hoarder house. There was just oh, stuff no. everywhere. It was crazy. So I had to go up to this top level of this old like Victorian house and take this dead rat and take it down. Did you think you were going to die in there? Imagine if you I, send out it was some <laughs> all the shit you've been through. It was, so, it was That's crazy. That's how it ends. It's it was a fucking crazy. serial killer house. <laughs> but anyway, I just remember that distinctly because it was so odd. But uh, yeah, so send it off. And then I didn't know. Like, you don't know, are they going to call you back? Are they not? Um, are they going to read one word of it and just say, eh? Or are they not even opening it all? Who knows? But about two weeks. So it was about two weeks. When I say immediately, I mean... Like two weeks. That's um, pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. I get a call from uh, from Brad Thor, and I wow. pull the car over. I'm in Texas. I'm on a. Uh, I just finished this hunt, and I pull over to the side of the road, and uh, he said, "Hey, you've been struck by lightning," and I was like, "What?" And he said, "Yep, she she." What year it. was this? This is. Uh, tw- I mailed it in J- uh, November of 2016. So I got out of the military in July or June 2016. Mailed it in November, and then I heard back at early December. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. And uh, yeah, she, he said she, she loves it and she wants to publish it. And later I found out that she called him because he's their political thriller guy. And she's like, hey, um, you know, I, I got Jack Carr's manuscript and I love it. But kind of you're our, you're our guy. What do you want me to do? And he's like, I want you to publish Jack. 
And that was so cool. So cool. So he could have put the kibosh on it if he was Maybe, a I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. He's so great. He's so awesome. And one thing he told me when we first talked, like I said, he didn't. He said, don't call me throughout this next year when you're writing. But what he did say is that the only difference between a published author and an unpublished author is that the published author never quit. And so for me, mm. from Buds and having that bell right there that's within sight of you during Hell Week, we put it in the in the trailer hitch of these vehicles that follow you everywhere, so you don't even have to run anywhere. You just have to like take a few steps and ring this thing, and you're done. So that really resonated with me because of that. Mm. Um, and I, I just I love that. So I'm like, all right, I can I can do this. And uh, and I always knew I could anyway because I had that background and had that foundation. I knew what I was going to do, and I it was I was so excited. So anyway, he told me that that next couple weeks later, I, or mid December, I fly to New York and we sit down. And I think she wanted to make sure that I wasn't a crazy person. So we get to New <laughs> well, York. especially after you read your books. Like, who the <laughs> fuck point. is coming up with this shit? Good point. In that first one, well, I'll tell you that, there's the first one. There's like in this third one, if you've got to the torture scene yet, well, there's something similar. I read the whole book. And I, I, or went through the whole book. So there's yeah, a torture scene. through the torture scene. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that one. And then in the second one, there's another torture scene. And then in this other, the first one, there's one that uh, I got from the Shining Path guerrilla movement in South America. And what they used to do is, uh, and they got it from somewhere too, but they'd essentially eviscerate you while you're alive and make you walk around a tree so your intestines are now wrapped around this tree and then the jungle eats you alive yeah it was crazy so i was worried that might be a little <laughs> off-putting to somebody in new york in publishing mm. um but later I, I found out that that's like everyone's favorite chapter from the book <laughs> especially people you wouldn't expect like librarians Oof. and like it, it people absolutely love it but uh what i get to new york and i'm little like so now i'm like okay um i want to make a good impression uh so i bring a suit uh, and I, I, I've never had to do this before. So I, I heard of people, you hang it in the bathroom and you let the steam get to it to get the wrinkles out of the suit. So I do that <laughs> and I'm getting ready. And then I go to put the suit on. It's soaking wet oh. and it's December. It's New York. It's freezing. I don't have like a coat like other people in New York have or scarves or whatever they wear. And, uh, so I put this thing on and I walk, I'm like, soaking wet and I have to walk to this coffee place and by the time I get there I'm like a sheet of ice and I get there make sure I'm there an hour early and I gave the guy I, forget, I think I gave him like 40 bucks or something to try to wait for a table to be ready that was a little more private than the other tables in the coffee shop and so in we go I sit down waiting um, I ask her what her favorite coffee is ahead of time boom you know she shows up sit down we have a great conversation for about 45 minutes to an hour and she said hey I want this thing but do you know you need an agent and I was like what <laughs> like you need an agent what? to negotiate yeah. yeah like the press field thing didn't say that in there and when I was learning about the, the war of art and the resistance and all that stuff yeah. we didn't talk about agents in there and uh, I'm like oh no I, how do I get one of those and she's like alright new guy um, I'll, I'll introduce you to four and then just pick one and I was like okay oh wow so interviewed four and uh, how do you know who the pick so it was crazy so there was two two males two females uh, they were all Fantastic. All great reputations. All amazing. Uh, the guys, I was like, it was very obvious that it wasn't, uh, they would have been great. And, and you're not going to pick, you know, I'm not going to make a wrong choice here. So it was in that sense, I was very lucky. Uh, but I said, okay, they're, they're probably not the right ones. But between the two females, they're both so amazing, but they were 180 out from each other. Uh, one had been around since the Tom Clancy days, small boutique agency, uh, represents John Grisham. Uh, so you go in there and you have all these John wow. Grisham posters all over the place. The whole team comes out, sits down, talks to you. It was, a, it was amazing. She was so awesome. And, uh, and then the other one, younger, hadn't really, hadn't found her Tom Clancy or Grisham type person yet. Uh, bigger agency, 
uh, that also ICM that's out here in Hollywood as well. And it was such a tough decision. It was like a final rose ceremony. Like, I haven't broken up with someone in 20 years, but I felt like I was breaking up with someone because I was so invested in both of these agents. I just like they were both so fantastic. But I felt like, and I was in Lanai at the time when I made the decision, and I was like, oh man, it felt like the final rose ceremony. And then picked the one with ICM because I thought, you know, for this type of a novel and for where I wanted to go with a movie or series or something like that to be that part of the mosaic um, and to continue building this foundation of readers. I think that's probably the right choice. And I think it was. So you had this plan to turn this into some sort of a series from the time you released the very first book. Yeah, from before that. And so what's crazy is that as I'm writing this, now they tell you not to think of someone playing your character as you're writing, but as a child of the 80s, that's almost impossible not to do. So as I'm writing, the crazy part is, like usually you'd think of like Mark Wahlberg, or you think of somebody that had done these sort of things kind of before. But I thought of Chris Pratt. And he had just done, all he'd done is Parks and Rec. And he'd done, uh, he had a small role in Zero Dark Thirty where he plays a seal. He has like a couple lines in there. And for some reason, I'm like, that's the guy. Really? Yeah, I had no connection to him. Um, and no, it wouldn't have been the obvious choice back then. This is 20, so I started writing in December of 2014, I think, or early 2015, somewhere there. So, so he wasn't this giant movie star back then nope, either. hadn't done any of that, that stuff yet. And I thought, you know what, this is a likable guy. Uh, and he seems like an awesome dude. I'm getting a good feeling from him. And I thought, you know, growing up in the 80s, I love Magnum. Uh, you know, he started off as a naval intelligence officer, and then they found out about SEALs, the writers. So they turned him into a SEAL a couple seasons into it. And, like, everybody loved Magnum in the 80s. Women liked him. The guys liked him. You know, nothing not to like about Magnum. And he also does the first, essentially, what you would call a murder on national television with the other person not having a firearm or a weapon. And it's the end of, uh, I think it's season season three. Um, but the guy, a guy that had him as a POW in Vietnam comes to Hawaii. There's a little conspiracy thing involved. And at the end, he thinks he's walking away. And then Magnum asks him if he's seen the sun rise that morning. Because that morning when his friend his friend gets killed, there's a sunrise. And the guy turns around. And he's like, yes, why? And then Magnum turns around and boom. And they stop it right there with this like fireball coming out of the end of his 1911. And they freeze it right there. And it was the first time on, uh, on television in that primetime hour where someone had killed somebody else. The hero had killed someone else who wasn't armed. I've forgotten about that, but very I'm cool. remembering it now. Very that cool. was very controversial. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. So I thought, that's who I need. I need somebody who's a likable guy uh, who's going to invest in this. And uh, I heard he was like pro-military and that sort of thing. And, and uh, Chris Pratt's the guy. And that's all, that's all the thought I gave to it. You though. couldn't have picked a better guy. So awesome. And I, yeah, who knew what he was going to turn into with Jurassic Park? And all. He hadn't done yeah. Passengers. He hadn't done anything serious yet. But I also thought about, because I've been studying this since up my whole life, and I thought about in the 80s, Look what Tom Hanks did in the 80s. You know, he's in Bosom Buddies. He's in uh, Dragnet. He's in The Burbs. He's in Joe versus the Volcano. And then he does something called Philadelphia in the early 90s. And he takes that risk. And since then, he's been able to write his own ticket. He's one of the greatest uh, actors of his generation. Uh, and I thought, who's that guy in this generation that needs to stretch a little bit, that needs to do something different? Uh, and I'm like, that's, that's Chris Pratt. He can do this. And so I thought of it. And then even crazier... Before the first book came out, I'm at Thunder Ranch training, doing some shooting stuff up there in Oregon, and I get this call from uh, a guy that I knew in the SEAL teams. And he's like, hey, bro, do you remember me? And you know, you know Jared. And uh, he, uh, he was out there in Utah with us. And he's like, hey, bro, you remember me? I'm like, yeah, of course I remember you. How's it going? I hadn't talked to him in five years or something. And we catch up a little bit, and he's like, hey, you know, I just wanted to thank you for when I was leaving the SEAL teams, I don't know if you remember, but you had me in your office, you sat me down, you talked about transition, you introduced me to some people in the private sector, and I've never forgotten it. 
I was like, oh, wow. Hey, of course I'm going to do that for you because, I mean, he's an awesome dude, total stud, great operator, and wants to get out of the team. So I'm going to try to help him as best I can. Uh, but he really remembered it. And he said, hey, I heard you wrote a book. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in a couple months here. There are these galley copy things, which are early copies of a novel. I can send one to you. I'd love to send it. And he said, yeah, I'd that'd be great, but I'd like to give one to a friend of mine. And I said, yeah, no problem. Who's that? He said, Chris Pratt. It's like, no way. Wow. Yeah. So he gives it to Chris. Chris reads it. And uh, next thing you know, he's optioned it before it even uh, comes out. Are you a guy who believes in fate? Do you believe in destiny? So when I was in Ramadi in 2005, 2006, uh, that's where I got to think about this a little bit. Because every time you left the wire, anything could have been an IED. And you could have either spent that time on the way to Target and coming back from Target worried about, oh, is that is that dead donkey on the side? Is that is that going to blow up and and kill me or kill that hit that uh, Humvee in front of me? Uh, that piece of trash right there, is that covering something else? Is, that a, is there a wire there? You could spend every single mission, especially going to and from Target and even on Target, worried about that. Or you could focus on the mission, focus on the job, get there, do the job, get back. And at that time, I was like, you know, you know, I think I have to resign myself to fate here in a lot of these things. Otherwise, my mind is going to be focused not where it needs to be, but on is that an IED? Is that an IED? And right. so I thought, all right, you know what? If, if I get blown up today, that's just that's just how it was. You know, do everything we do everything we possibly can to mitigate that, but uh, you know, it could happen, and I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of bandwidth worried about that, other than trying to mitigate it as best we possibly can. But that's not going to be the focus of my everything that I'm thinking about. It can't be. I need to be focused on this mission. I need to focus on contingencies. Uh, there's a firefight. I need to figure out uh, what assets are available to come in here for QRF or whatever else, what air we have overhead. How do we how do we uh, maneuver here? All those things. Like That's what I need to worry What's about QRF? as a leader. Uh, quick reaction force. So you have those set up at different places in case you get hit so they can come on in, usually in like Bradley's or uh, Abrams sometimes, uh, uh, different vehicles that have a little more firepower than you do as you're sneaking through the streets. So, so I kind of resigned myself to fate. And there's a, a book called um, uh, The Bridge uh, at San Luis Rey. And there's like, I forget how many people, but let's say five or six people that are on this bridge and it collapses. And the story is how each one of them got to be on that bridge. Why were those six people the ones that were on that bridge uh, at that time? And it's fate. So, so I guess... And I haven't really thought of it too much since then, uh, other than that experience in, in Iraq and just having to or feeling like I had to resign myself to it. Um, the Chris I, Pratt thing is eerie, though. It's crazy. It's a little eerie. It's, it's, crazy. All, it's I mean, wonderfully eerie. Now, eerie may be the worst word uh, for it because <laughs> uh, pretty amazing. I feel very fortunate. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that you kind of maybe made that happen. Like maybe you kind of put that out there as you were writing it, thinking about him. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, but, I say that and I say, shut up, hippie. Like, part, part, part but, but, of me is like, oh, what do you yeah. got a crystal up your ass too? You know, yeah, it's like, but that, yeah, but, but then, who like, knows? If I hadn't, uh, if I hadn't, if I was like, not yeah. a, I don't know, I mean, I was, you know, whatever, an average seal or whatever, but if I, uh, you know, hadn't taken the time to sit down with Jared and like, maybe Chris doesn't even know this exists today. Right. Uh, and other crazy part of this, I thought of Anton Fuqua directing it. Really? He's directing it. Yeah. Why, I, you, why? Why him? Because I, I love it's, shooter. Did he do Training Day? He did Training Day. Got the Oscar for uh, for Training Day. Love that. Uh, Magnificent Seven. I knew he'd worked with Chris on on Magnificent Seven. Mm. Um, I actually did know someone who knew him, um, but uh, so I so I did have that connection through someone someone else. Um, but I love Shooter, which is based on the book Point of Impact by Stephen Hunter with Mark Wahlberg. Uh, love that movie because I because I love the book so much. Um, they made it more modern for today's time, but it's a Vietnam sniper is uh, Bob Lee Swagger is who it originally is. 
is. But uh, I just thought he's the guy. He's the guy to direct this thing. And now they're both doing it, wow. which is crazy. That is so crazy. crazy. Yeah. That's so weird, man, that you had those two people in your head. It's like, that's what makes me think I don't, I don't not believe that it's possible to manifest something. But I think most of the people that talk about that stuff are full of shit. Yeah. That's where it's a problem. Like most of the people that talk about that stuff, they're trying to sell you something that, well, you know, you can make your life happen and you just need a dream board and write all those <laughs> things down. There's a lot of that stuff is horseshit because you got to do the work, right? That's it. But part of me thinks that if you do do the work and you do have that focus and that intensity, I feel like there might be some sort of frequency that you can tap in where you make things more likely to happen or possibly you can make things happen. But the thing is, you know, like you only hear those stories from the people that are successful. Like how many people are like, I wrote a book <laughs> and I had Chris Pratt in my head. And then right. I, I ran into him and I said, Chris. And, yeah. And he's like, get the fuck away from me. You know? No, it's it's totally crazy how all that uh, how all that stuff kind of comes to comes together. But. You couldn't have picked a better guy than Chris. He is such a good guy. He's such a great guy. He's almost weird, weirdly nice. Yeah, no, he's so nice. Maybe yeah. it's just different for around here. Maybe I don't know. But he's very different in terms of like Hollywood actors. Like, there's a few like him. Like, you know, it's like people love to say that actors are full of shit and they're gross and they're self centered and narcissists. And yeah, it's true a lot of the time. <laughs> is it really? But it's not true all the time. Yeah. And Chris is a great example of a guy who's like he's a very religious guy very pro-military very he's a really positive guy very 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 friendly guy he's not your typical actor yeah no he's, he's and, been so he's great to me also a huge movie star yeah. so it's weird it's like he's not that you know guy who does coke and goes to parties and he's a different different animal yeah so they're, they do exist male and female there's yeah. there are actresses that are great people they just they just really genuinely enjoy acting but for the most part the people that get into it are people that need a disproportionate amount of attention yeah. and for the most part the people that need a disproportionate amount of attention are disproportionately annoying <laughs> you know yeah and usually they like to get rid of the author right away when you option something because they're uh, like i want to get rid of that guy because he's going to be on set and he's going to be like that's not right. my vision you're ruining my book or whatever right. so they like to get rid of you but chris wanted to be involved so i got to help out on the uh, on the pilot script that's, for this thing that's awesome and it is so good now, like, is this a Netflix thing? Is that what you're doing? It's uh, it's still classified. Okay. I think they're doing some some announcement at some point, but it's a uh, yeah, streaming service. And oh, that's right. Okay, I know what it is. I forgot. Yeah, so okay. it's, uh, I think Can't it's eight say. to ten part series, maybe something like that. But eight to ten parts. I think that's so. I think they'll perfect. I don't know exactly that's why. Per yeah, because if they tried to jam that, you know, yeah, I don't think it'd work. No. If they tried to do a movie, well, yeah. you don't have to anymore. Yeah, it's great. People and, like a and show now like, he looks genius, right? Yes. Like, especially now. Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like such a good move. Another crazy fate thing is because when you were doing that, like, ooh, when you were writing that in 2016. The, the streaming thing wasn't what it is today. Right. And well, even when we did the deal, it was like oh, a movie. It was kind of like that. That It was early 20, 2018 uh, when we did the deal. And it's like, well, do you have a series or movie? So it's both. It could mm, be both in, yeah. the, in the contract. And now and then they decided to do the series you know, earlier on before COVID even was on the radar. Uh, but now it looks like, yeah, genius move. Well, now, like, series have a giant advantage over movies. Cause now movies are getting released. On, on Yeah. It's a really interesting thing today. Um, one of the theater chains was saying that they're not going to have Universal Films anymore because Universal released Trolls on direct-to-demand with people with uh, Apple yeah. TV and Amazon and stuff like that. So these cinemas are now going to war, like publicly going to war with the studios because they're saying, hey, you need to release your fucking movies in our theaters. Yeah. we got a business together. And then the theater's like, uh, 
you know, the the, the movie produ- uh, right. production companies like you might not have a business in six months. It's tough. Because who the fuck is going to go to the movies now? I know. Even when they're like, okay, it's all good. We're open up May 1st or whatever it is or June 1st. Yeah. And or then who's going to rush right back with their kids? It's not going to be what it used to be. Yeah. It's going to take a long time. they were on the way down anyway. Time. Yeah. They were, kinda, hmm. they were because, well, I've been saying forever, I would love if, you know, I have a big TV at home. I would love if I could just watch movies on TV. Yeah. I don't want to go to the movie and some guy's talking to his girlfriend in the middle of the movie and ruining everything. Or yeah. people are checking their phones. They see the light from their phone. Yeah. It some weird you. guy walks in. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, kind of like it. Right. For me anyway, I'm like looking at that. Yeah. That's strange. Exactly. Like, He's yeah. got a backpack. Great. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm going to yeah. sit here the whole time with my kids just on edge the entire time exactly. worried about this. Where are the exits? You know, that sort of thing. Um, which is important to do in a movie theater exits. Like there's smoke yes. or whatever. You know, you got to go to the wall. Use mm-hmm. your hand down the wall to get to yep. the exit. Like that's Sort of stuff, but uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. Why not stay stay at home? Enjoy it at home. But make your popcorn at home. So it's looking like a good move now. But going yeah. back to that, going back to the fate thing. So it's also like, what if I had not been a, a you know the operator or whatever that I was? What if the guy had a different impression of me that sat next to Brad Thor at the fundraiser? Yeah, he's not going to recommend me to to Brad Thor if I was uh, if he had a bad impression of me or thought I was a bad operator or had a bad reputation or whatever else. Like he's not going to even mention my name. To Brad Thor. So all those little things that uh, kind of came together. Or what if I didn't read growing up? What if I didn't read all these guys like David Morrell, who created Rambo in 1972, and or read Brotherhood of the Rose early on, which also solidified me to go into the SEAL teams? I was already on the path, but he has one sentence in that book, Brotherhood of the Rose, that uh, talks about SEALs. And I had such a good time, such a great experience reading that novel that I knew that one day I'd write in the same genre as he does. And now he's a he's a dear friend now. He's, abs- he's an incredible guy. Um, so all those little things just kind of happened. I mean, they happened, but I did them because I was passionate about them. I was passionate about reading, passionate about writing, mm. passionate about serving my country, passionate about being the best operator I could possibly be. Um, so I was always focused on those things. And then, you know, these other things kind of, it, it helped. It helped propel this whole thing forward. So that seems like the formula for success in everything. Really, it really does. Like being passionate about something, focusing all your attention and all your energy, and really trying to do your best at something. That seems like the formula. Well, do the work. Yeah, it's that whole yeah. that Pressfield book is called "Do the Work." Like yeah. you have to do that before anything else can happen. Uh, you can't just wish that uh, something was going to happen. And it, you know, you have to sit down. And do the work, whether it's write comedy, whether it's write a novel, whether it's start a gym, whatever you're going to do, like you have to sit down and do the work. And And, and people don't, they, for whatever reason, don't quantify in their head that all those little things you don't feel like doing when you just make yourself do them, they all add up. You have to. And it really makes something happen that doesn't happen before. It's not going to happen otherwise. No one's going to do it for you. No, um, no one's like going to do it Like I hear authors talking all the time about what their publisher doesn't do for them. So right. I, was like, I hear that about Dear. comics too. Okay. My agent doesn't do anything for yeah. me. Be undeniable. They can't do shit then. Yeah, for me, I'm like, yeah. well, I have no background. I'm not coming from politics. I'm not coming from sports. I'm not coming from anything where I have any sort of a following that's going to you know, push me forward in this type of a realm. What are they? They don't owe me anything. Uh, I owe them something. I need to prove mm. myself to them uh, yeah. and prove that I was a good investment because most books don't make back their initial investment. Um, so you have to make most that back. books. Yeah, most books. Really? There's a few of them, kind of like movies. Like all the movie, all the Avengers and all that sort of stuff makes the money back for the studios for all the other ones that no one sees that maybe mm. win Oscars but aren't making back their money. So same thing in publishing. There's a few at the top, like the Stephen Kings and Brad Thors and Vince Flynn's and all that. They make it back for all the books that don't make 
back their investment. So I was like, I need to prove myself to Simon & Schuster. How am I going to do that? Well, I I owe them. They gave me this shot. And so I'm not going to leave any rock unturned. I'm going to look at things like from other industries like Black Rifle Coffee. How did they build a coffee company? Like guys getting out of the military and out of the agency. How did these guys get together and make some YouTube videos? And all of a sudden now they have this amazing company. Well, it's a great product. Huge company. Yeah, It's an amazing product at its base. But you know what else they did? Oh, they did some advertising. They did some marketing. They did their own marketing on advertising on social media platforms. And they connected with other people that had similar interests or that they thought might be able to then grow the brand and also help those other brands along the way. Well, it's also this, uh, it's authentic. Like Evan really always, Evan Hafer, the mm-hmm. CEO of Black Rifle Coffee, Amazing. has always been a coffee freak yeah. like his whole life. He used to fucking roast coffee in the back of his Humvee while he's doing deployments. It's Amazing. Cool. Yeah, he's great. And when he takes you through, you sense that passion. So yeah. when he talks about coffee, it's like me talking about writing. Uh, you know, you can sense that passion, and it's incredible. I learned so much about coffee from him. Now I'm turning into more of a coffee snob. Like, before I wasn't. But now that I know him and know those guys and have seen the process, and now I'm a total coffee snob. Does he give you a hard time because Reese likes honey and, and a little bit of cream in his coffee? Not as much as I thought he would. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, when he makes coffee, it's really good without anything in it. Like, when he knows what he's doing and they do that thing with the glass deal and the whole thing, it's yeah, awesome. He measures it coffee. out. Yeah, and they weigh it and the whole thing. It's awesome. Uh, for me, I mean, getting up in the morning, it's chaos. The kids are, you know, it's insanity. And uh, so we just hit the coffee maker. Black Rifle Coffee's in there, and I toss in some honey, toss in, toss in some cream. So, so that's you. You're yeah. the honey guy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So okay. I, I want to make my character relatable. Did anybody relatable. give you shit about putting honey in your coffee? Yes. So in the seal, <laughs> it, most, just like the protagonists of these stories, they, they like their coffee black. Well, in real life, a lot of SEALs and Special Forces guys like their coffee black also. They like to suffer. And uh, yeah, I guess, but I always liked, you know, can I get that latte? Can I get that caramel macchiato latte? So I always, I always did that. And then I found out about honey and coffee and honey and tea later. Um, but it just was very natural for me to, to write that into the character because he has a background similar to, to mm-hmm. me as a, a former Navy SEAL sniper that becomes an officer. And he's at this point in his time in uniform where he's going to get out and take care of his family, which is where I was when I started writing it. So I wanted him to be relatable. I didn't want him to be a, this superhero. I wanted him to be someone that wasn't, was good at some things, like kicking indoors, like the taking sniper shots, some of the things that I'm okay at. Uh, but then also surveillance side of the house, some of the things that we don't typically do in the SEAL team. Maybe he's not as good at those sorts of things. And mm. maybe he drives a FJ-62 Land Cruiser because I love Land Cruisers. And there's also, you know, that whole subculture of people that love Land Cruisers uh, yes. that you can bring into the fold also. So it's very natural for me to talk about those vehicles uh, and then to develop characters uh, by talking about, oh, Defender 110, Land Cruiser, you know, give each other a hard time, whatever else, or 9mm versus 45, or whatever. Just use those things as character development tools. So it was very natural for me to add honey and cream to the protagonist's coffee because that's what I drink at home daily. Yeah, that's got to be the interesting one of one of the many many interesting things about writing a character is that you can incorporate your own little quirks and th- Resco watches. That's right. the, <laughs> you you know, notice that? Yeah, yeah, yeah Resco yeah, watch yeah. in sure, there. Sure, yeah. I have a Resco. Nice. All, all the different stuff that you. You're, you mean, and the the gear thing too. It's like you're very meticulous and very specific about the type of gear and and how he prepares everything. Yeah, it'd be very very odd for me not to do that. And some people don't like it. Um, and there are plenty of books where someone cl- you know takes the safety off on their Glock before they shoot someone or something like that, or they you know click it off on a That's revolver funny. or whatever. Like there's plenty of books out there that do that. Right. And uh, you know I won't make a mistake that egregious. I'm sure I'll make a mistake at some point for the people that really get. But in when there. you see a mistake like that, doesn't it take you out? 
out? A little bit. It's like, oh, like, I'm going to ah, try not to pay attention. It's kind of like watching on. a movie where they really kind of jack something yeah. up. And I'm like, ah. Because the worst thing to do is watch a, like a SEAL movie with a SEAL or a, uh, movie, a, a police movie with a cop or whatever uh, that's going to tell you about all the mistakes so you can't enjoy the film. So I try right. to just enjoy them for what they are. But it does take you out. And it's like, ah, what else did they get kind of not right if the guy's like flipping right. the safety off on this Glock? Or You're it's right, like, right, right. So, uh, so for me, it's very natural to incorporate that gear. And it's also very natural for me to talk about it because I was so into it for so long that uh, I know a lot of people in these industries. And like, this is an Aries watch right here. Guy was at the CIA. He's friends with Evan Hafer. Uh, you know, so I'd talk to Evan and be like, hey, is this, this dude legit? And he's like, oh yeah, he's legit. So uh, so like all that stuff gets woven in there as well. And it's just so natural for me to do. And also, you know, when I see somebody, I can tell a lot about them by what they're carrying, how they're carrying it, um, you know, what kind of belt they're, they're using, you know, what kind of shoes they're wearing, uh, what kind of knife is in their pocket. Like I can tell a lot about them. It tells a story immediately. Mm. So I'm reading them without them saying one word. Uh, and so my characters do that as well. And then I use those tools to describe other characters that, uh, that, that aren't me, that aren't a SEAL, that aren't somebody else. Um, well, I know how SF guys travel or how they how they have their packs or whatever, whatever whatever it is or i know someone that doesn't really know what they're doing this character doesn't really know what they're doing so uh yeah he's going to be carrying this 1911 that's brand new that he's not carrying cocked and locked doesn't have one in the chamber whatever it is like i can tell a lot about someone just by looking at their setup with a quick glance so it's very natural for me to do that in stories as well and it gives me a lot to work with uh how many interview anyone how many seals are novelists is that is it Common? So it's not common. There are SEALs, obviously, who get out and write uh, nonfiction. Yeah. Um, the Richard Marcinko, who created... Uh, Dick Marcinko. I read those yep, books. Yep. Yeah, so, those are the first books that I ever read on military. In, in oh, fact. nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, early 90s. And when that came out, I was so excited because I had read everything you possibly could on SEALs up until that point because I wanted to be a SEAL since I was seven years old. I knew I was going to be in the military even before then. When did those then. books come out? Those came out in the 90s. So I was... Uh, did they you know, really? Yep. Early 90s. Uh, that was the first one called I Road feel, I felt like I read them. Yeah, I read World Warrior. I Road felt War. like I read them before then, but I guess that makes sense. Yeah. 90s is a long blends. time ago. Yeah, I know. Blend, times yeah. kind of blends together. So when I found out, hey, there's an autobiography coming out about the guy that started this command, damn neck on the East Coast, this counter-terrorist unit, I was so excited to read that book. Wasn't there an issue, too, where people were kind of upset that he was telling these stories? I think so, but as a kid reading that, like yeah. you don't know any of that. You don't right. know any of that backstory. You're just like, oh, this is amazing. He yeah. must have had an incredible life to be able to write a book. And the, the first commanding officer of Delta Force wrote a book called The Delta Force in, I think, 1986, which really goes into the Iranian hostage crisis and des what happened to Desert One uh, in 1980. And that was a very formative time for me because I knew I was going in the military. And at the time, Walter Cronkite's on TV. We're watching it during dinner. He's counting down the days that U.S. personnel have been taken hostage in Iran. And I'm seeing those click down I'm every or click up every single night. Uh, and I'm wondering, I see the pictures, black and white photos of U.S. military and uh, people from the State Department. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, though. I just see a guy in a suit and a guy in a military uniform blindfolded in black and white photos on the cover of the newspaper. Uh, and I'm wondering why are, why is the United States standing by and letting this happen, even though I'm six years old at the time? Um, I'm like, why is this happening? Why don't we go in there and get those guys? And then Desert One happens. Um, and, of course, that's that's on the mind. It's still shades. Everything we do is a special operation. In special operations, there's a big black eye for the country. Special operations in general. Explain to people what happens. People, so, many people don't know. So, about six months after the, uh, uh, the hostages were taken in Iran, so they were taken, I think, in November of 1979, and about six months they were eventually held for 444 days. But about five, six months into that, uh, we made an attempt 
to rescue them. So they're being held at the embassy still in an adjacent building, I think. And we it was the first use that uh, most people know of of what's called Delta Force. So our premier counterterrorist unit that is modeled after the British SAS. And the British SAS has been in service for a long time. So we had guys that went through their program uh, in the 60s even, and they took those lessons and created ours because late 60s, mid 70s, there's a lot of hijackings. We have the Munich Olympics. We have all these, these, uh, these terrorist events, and we don't really have a good way to counter them. And so Delta Force is created, and their first test was uh, Operation Eagle Claw to rescue the hostages in Iran. So it, it, it just an anniversary of it just happened the other day. So April 1980, uh, we give it a shot, and it didn't work out. So what happened was we have Marine pilots um, flying these uh, Sea Stallion helicopters off, I think it was the USS Nimitz, I think. Um, so they're flying off an aircraft carrier. They're meeting the assaulters from Delta Force, who are flying in on C-130s from an island called Masira in the, uh, the Gulf of Oman, where a place where we would then launch into Afghanistan years later. Um, interestingly enough, I spent a little time time there. And they were going to meet up in the desert and uh, outside of Tehran, Iran, a few hundred miles outside the, outside the city. So the C-130s land, EC-130s land that have fuel, helicopters land from the uh, aircraft carrier. They're going to refuel those helos, and the planes are going back to Masira, and the helicopters are going to get closer to Tehran. So they're going to get closer, they're going to land, they're going to get camouflaged during the day, and then some guys who have been on the ground in Tehran, this is the best part of the story that no one really talks about, we've had guys on the ground in Iran. We had an E-6 Air Force guy that spoke Farsi. We had a special operations legend, Dick Meadows, uh, who was also on the Sante raid in Vietnam, and we have two special forces guys out of Germany, and then two CIA assets. Uh, I think one's called Bob, and one, one's named Muhammad. And they had to get vehicles out there to the hide site where the Delta Force guys are, and then they're going to assault. They're going to go in, they're going to retake the embassy, they're going to get the hostages, and then the helicopters are going to take back off, land in a soccer stadium next door, and they're going to extract from there, exfil from there. So uh, what happened was the planes land, helicopters, uh, have some have mechanical problems, a couple get lost in the sandstorm, they needed six to do the mission. They launched with eight. Uh, less than six make it to that link-up point in the desert, so they have to scrap. It's called no-go criteria. So it takes the decision essentially away from the ground force commander because ahead of time, he knows that, oh, if we don't have, if we have four helicopters, we can't do this mission. So instead of being on the ground saying, okay, we have four, how many guys do you have? Can we do it with this? Those decisions have been made ahead of time in the planning process. So the helicopters land, not enough. Uh, they scrapped the mission, the abort, and what would have happened is they would have gone back and they would have reconstituted and gone after the hostages a few days later. But one of the helicopters in refueling collides with one of the EC-130s, huge explosion, eight U.S. servicemen die, and uh, so they don't go take the hostages. They don't go back for the hostages again a few days later. Uh, Iran moves the hostages, different locations all over Iran to make it a lot more difficult if we had gone after them again. But the next day, uh, President Carter makes an announcement, said we tried to get the hostages, didn't work, had this disaster in the desert, and it was a big black eye for his, his presidency and for special operations in general. But the important part, we took those lessons and we, got, we applied them going forward. So now we train all together. Instead of having all these pilots and assaulters and all these people that have never really trained together up until that point, well, now we do. Now we have a special operations command. We all train together. So pilots are trained. You're doing all this stuff together. So when 9-11 hit, all those years later, we're much more prepared because 
of what happened at Desert One. So that's how we honor those guys that died. That's how we honor that mission is by taking those lessons and apply them going forward. And that's what you, <laughs> interestingly enough, that's what you do in life also when you have to learn these lessons and apply them going forward. It's all about how you apply them going forward. Well, that's a huge advantage for you as an author to have all that information and to have that legitimate background, like to be writing about these things, like we we're talking about guys who are writing about taking safeties off Glocks, people that really don't know what they're writing about when they do. It's like, I mean, you can be creative and pretend you're a ballerina without ever right. ballet danced, but I don't think it's going to be the same. And there's, there's an authenticity to the way you write and to uh, the one book that I've read, at least Savage Sun, where you, it, it, it just it, there's a frequency that you tap into that is a, a frequency of a person that has experienced this stuff in real life. You're not imagining, you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff where people write about things where they're imagining. Yeah. You know, there's a wo movie called Warrior where it's a, an MMA movie. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great one. They fight two days in a row, and when they they fought two days in a row, I'm like, get the fuck oh, out yeah, of yeah. here! I'm watching. I'm like, what are you talking? You can't fight two days in a row. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone the day after a fight? They look like they're fucking elephant man. Right. Their whole body's a mess. Everything's swollen. Like this is nonsense. But someone it, that doesn't know is like, exactly. oh, I'm gonna have this in the story. They're gonna he's gonna lose the first night, but the next night he's gonna go in. Yeah, exactly. He's gonna win. Or, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. They it's do hard. things that take you out yeah. of like. You, if it's a, it's a world they don't really know about, and they're writing about this world, whereas you're writing about a world that you were so deeply embedded in for all those years that when you're writing about it, it just it's really compelling. It's very interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I got to, I, and I incorporate some real world stuff in there too, like a, a shot that I didn't take in the Jafarak, and I fictionalize it by having it a memory from Fallujah, um, and so I, I I morph it around a little bit. But the passion is there, uh, the feelings and emotions behind it are there. It's woven into the first story, and then some. And so it was very therapeutic. I got to take, uh, and I was very lucky downrange. Like you can do all the right things in combat. Like if you were to whiteboard something out here, and we talk about tactics and all the rest of it, you could make those exact same right decisions downrange, and things can still go south, and people can die. Then the other is opposite true. Like you can make all the wrong decisions, quote unquote wrong decisions, and things can work out just fine. Uh, just like life, right? Yeah, like life. Yeah. Um, so you could. So whether you made mistakes or not point being, you're going to have a hard time dealing with them later. And for whatever reason, whether it was luck or whatever else, um, I sleep very well at night because of the things that uh, that was involved in downrange, but I still got to tap into them and put them into the story. Now, there's a, going back to what you said about SEALs writing books, uh, interestingly enough, in the first book, there's an interrogation scene, uh, interrogation uh, an interview, meaning not a, not a torture scene, but sitting down with NCIS, so the Naval Criminal Investigation Service. And so some bad things, my career wasn't all, all wonderful, um, like the downrange stuff, very lucky, very fortunate to be in a couple of right places at the right times to do some interesting things. Um, but when we got back, a good buddy of mine, uh, Mark Owen, he writes a book called No Easy Day. And that's the one about the bin Laden raid. And that one, whoa, that was like a tipping point because in our community at the time, there'd been Act of Valor, that movie with, uh, with SEALs, active duty SEALs playing characters in an actual movie. There were other books out there. So there was already discussion happening like, hey, are we too much in the limelight here? We're supposed to be these quiet professionals. But, you know, going back in time, I, I read all these Vietnam books growing up and auto, every autobiography I could about people in the military. You know, Grant has his memoirs or whatever. So there's, there's a precedent, not just in this country, but worldwide of people getting out, talking about their experiences. And that's part of a first person account that historians will use later to, is it frowned uh, upon at all so it it got a, it was starting to get even more and more frowned upon 
uh, right up to that point, and that was the tipping point. So when that book came out, that's when everyone said, or not everyone, senior level leaders were like, okay, stop, I'll stop. Um, and they really, well, because of that book, they went and, inve- and all the investigations that happened, they went in and uh, essentially anyone that had a connection with him, they pulled in and investigated as a way to put pressure on him to get what they wanted. Uh, so so I was one of those guys. I've known him for since 99 or something like that. So we've been dear friends since that time. And so we have emails going back all these years. So I got pulled in to this interrogation room and they pulled out single personal emails, single sentences, totally out of context to try to get me for something that would put pressure on him. And they did that not just with me, but with almost anyone that had some sort of a connection with him, they investigated because he's already out of the military so, at this point. So things that you said totally out of context, like joking around about something or just just statements about yep. things? Just statements like, what did you mean by what did you mean by this? Um, and I used that in the first novel because I'm sitting there mm. in this interrogation. And you got these guys across from you and essentially NCIS here. From my perspective, are people that uh, they couldn't make it in the FBI or the CIA, and they weren't tough enough to be street cops. So now they're busting people on piss tests in the military and that mm. sort of thing. Uh, actually, my first experience with them was after September 11th, and you know I think we're all on the same team, and we're doing these shipboardings in the Northern Arabian Gulf to enforce the UN embargo for oil tankers that are leaving Iraq and then going to Iran. And so our job was to take those ships down before they got to Iranian waters, and then the UN would take over after that. But it was really interesting time because it's like a cop pulling over someone and you're walking up and you don't really know what's going on mm-hmm. and so they would uh come out of out of iraq they had all these metal over all the windows it cut off all the ladders on the ship so you'd have to uh, use a caving ladder to hook and climb up and then you'd have to breach and get inside these things and get them back into the gulf before they hit iranian waters otherwise oh, you had wow. to get off so it was, it was kind of a, a crazy deal but during one and we're doing a couple nights on a couple nights off that sort of thing with another platoon and then ncis shows up and they pull us all into these different rooms, and they said, hey, so an, uh, an M60, some sort of a like, machine gun type thing, uh, was, has gone missing on one of these ships that you guys were on. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. You know, okay. Um, well, how can I help you? And so they started talking, and they like, how, how would you get one off a ship if you wanted to steal a, a machine gun from a ship? How would you get it off? And me... I'm just kind of creative. I'm like, we're all on the same team here. I'm like, oh, this is what I would do. I take it off piece by piece, and whatever I said, you know. So I gave right. him my. And then as I was nearing the end, I'm seeing it in their face and seeing the notes they're taking. I'm like, wait a second, are they like trying to get me to? Like, I didn't take an M60 off a ship piece by piece. We were only on there for like. Well, the a, problem is like, you're an author, and I'm trying to think of this all through. Yeah, <laughs> See, and so I'm like, you're you're being creative. Yeah, so oh, even wow. back then, I had a bad experience with them. But uh, so what are they saying to you? Anyway, Did you so do this? So they just start accusing you. Uh, in in with the Marco and oh in there no they didn't accuse me but I could tell that things shifted and I'm getting so creative and telling him how I do it and I would mm-hmm. mix it in with this and we'd get it off Just like get that excited and, and smile yeah and totally <laughs> yeah just like I am now you know? <laughs> and then these guys are just like ah. anyway so I kind of figured it out near the end and I'm like oh wow this is not this isn't, something's not feeling quite right here like these guys are just after a win that's what they're they're just trying right. to get somebody that's yes. their job and if they can get a seal even better so after so after Mark Owen wrote the book No Easy Day same thing and. Uh, uh, you saw these guys across the table, um, and this is years later, so it wasn't like immediately. Um, they went after some guys immediately, whatever, but they put all this together over a long time and followed all What was all their these ultimate goal? And what did they want? I think they wanted him to, uh, they wanted to build a case against him, a criminal case against him. For what? Uh, for not submitting his book to the Department of Defense for review. Um, 
and you is know, that so they can redact certain things that yeah. are classified? Yeah, which is why I was hypersensitive to it, and even the minor fiction I submitted them. Um, which and that, is, is that protocol? Pain. So when all those th things in your book where it says redacted, yeah. is that why it's redacted? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So it's because of them? Yeah, so they wow. may be hypersensitive to it. Uh, so no other author of fiction that has the, classific the, the security clearances that I had, no one else submits fiction. But I was so uh, just tied to this because of my experience with the Mark Owen book and mm -hmm. what they tried to do. I was like, oh, I just want to make sure. Right. And I said, what they've taken out, absolutely ridiculous. So the first book, uh, I didn't appeal it because uh, they took 45 days to do it, which I thought was pretty good because they say they'll take 30. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's pretty good. They took out nine lines or something like that, which is fine. But the second one, they, a month goes by and two, then three, then four, then five, then six. And they get almost to the seven month mark when they finally get back to me. So at this point, we had to push the publication date oh, out of shit. April to the summer. And it's like a movie trying to figure out like when you don't want two Avengers movies coming out at the same time from the same studio. Right. Uh, so it, it so these are thought well ahead of time. So it was not convenient to have to push it all the way to uh, the end of July. So it was a pain. And every single thing in there that was blacked out, my attorneys found in publicly available government documents. So not just like on Wikipedia or from somebody else that wrote a book or whatever. No publicly available government websites, government documents that anyone on earth so they can download. had done their due diligence to check if that stuff had actually been released already publicly. My lawyers did. Yeah, but the people that the, the those internet, guys, no the yeah. the, uh, the people you submitted to it, the yeah. Department of Defense, they just have this black pen and they're just oh, just taking things out. Uh, and then they see, oh, CIA, we'll send it off to the CIA. Even though I don't work for the CIA, but they send it off, and then that starts the CIA clock looking at it. It's just uh, it's ridiculous. And this is not something you had to do. It's by precedent, no. Uh, because it's fiction. Because it's fiction by precedent. Now, like we talked about those laws earlier, three felonies a day. Yeah. Laws are written, if you look at them, very broadly so that the government can interpret them the way they want to. Mm. And that didn't always used to be the case. Um, uh, if you go back 50 years, uh, the idea was you had to write a law that the average guy could understand in one when you looked at it one time, read it, it's evident what that law means. Not anymore. The language involved, how long they are, uh, how tough they are to decipher, uh, even for attorneys to decipher. Uh, so it's, it's written in a way that they can come after anyone they want for anything, which is by design. And they used it to go after Mark Owen. They mm. used it, uh, even though that's nonfiction. Uh, you know, maybe should have. He went to an attorney that had experience in this space, which you would do. Who's the best attorney for this? Oh, the guy that did a book called Kill Bin Laden with someone from Delta Force, uh, that guy has experience. I'll go to him. So he went to that lawyer who said, no, you don't need to submit this. So there's lawsuits and all sorts of stuff that are associated with that. But uh, for me, what they did, this is years later, his second book, he sends it to me. So I'm getting ready to get out of the military. Uh, he sends me his second book and says, hey, what do you think of this? And so I read it and I just, you know, read it quick. And then I sent him like one note that said, hey, awesome. Uh, maybe in the first part in the preface, maybe talk about your experience over the last couple of years with the first book and what the government did to you and how you reacted. Just people are probably interested in that. So I wrote that. So now I'm in this interrogation room with these NCIS guys, and that's one of the things that they pull out and said, so why are you editing classified material that hasn't been approved by, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> guys, guys are good friends, sends me, the, sends me the thing, I look at it. So what they wanted was to just put pressure on him and said, hey, mm. we're going to go after your buddy uh, if you don't do this for us, um, which was tough probably to say. So what did they want from him? I think they wanted him to uh, admit he was guilty, uh, and they also wanted a statement. Of? 
of not submit of not submitting it to the Department of Defense Office of Prepublication and Security Review, not going through. They want to make an example of him so that anybody else getting out would know that they had to do that. And I don't think it worked because there's plenty of books out there that uh, nonfiction that have not been through that process. Right. Um, but uh, that's what they wanted from him. They wanted all the money from it, which was significant. All the money. Yep. And interestingly enough, all even, the money. All the money. And he was always going to give it all. That's the other part of this is so interesting is because I've known him for so long, he was always going to give it all away. And he had no reason to tell me that, you know, a year before the whatever, however long it was before. Like he wasn't setting this up as some criminal mastermind, but he was always going to give it away to a SEAL foundation. And when the book came out, it all went into a bank account. But guess what came out of the bank account? Lawyer fees after that. So he Mm. still had all the money except for the lawyer fees. And then they still go after you for taxes that you're supposed to be. Anyway. It's the government. So uh, so they wanted that money. Anything money going forward, like if they made a movie from it, all those proceeds, they just wanted to crush him and make an example of him so other people would submit or make people think about not, not even writing anything anyway. How did um, it all end up? So it's a lawsuit with the attorney that gave the bad advice. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where that is. Uh, and then all the money went back to the government that was in the account, and he's paying off the, the rest of it that went to attorney fees. So, so he didn't you know, make anything? No. Wow. One, one penny. All the money went to the government. All the money so, went to the government. And Plus taxes. Oh, so double money. Yeah. So so all the money goes to the government because he lost? Is that the idea? Because, because they finally put enough pressure on where the lawyers do their thing and they figure out a settlement of some sort. And, and that, that was, was the it. settlement. Yeah. All the money. Wow. And yeah. his second book, the same deal? Uh, no, that one went through the process. Uh, went through the... Uh, but after I read it. So he sent it to me before he sent it in. Oh, uh, so, okay. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing... I don't know, but you read it, and that's what they—that's what they, one of the things they used to try to get him to to do what they wanted. So, and that wasn't the only one. There's all everybody that knew him got got pulled into this thing. And uh, but point being is that had that not happened, then that interrogation scene in my novel where James Reese sits down after what happens to his team, sits down with those guys across the table, and I changed it to Afghanistan, changed it from San Diego to Afghanistan, but that's how I felt about the guys sitting across the table from me. So Mm. it feels real because I wasn't just like, hey, have you ever been into an interrogation room? Or I'm arresting a couple cop shows where they have somebody in an interrogation room. I'll just kind of write what that looks like or feels like. No, that's what it feels like to be in there, having these eyes on you, having them tell you that there's no cameras on when you know that there are, uh, and all... All that sort of thing. So I got to put all that together and make the book what it is. So without that happening, without them trying to go after me to put pressure on him uh, and everyone associated with that, uh, the first book would not be nearly as good. Like the combat stuff, yeah, it's different. But the other stuff, the conspiracy side of the house Mm. uh, and the NCIS guys and that interrogation in particular and some of the bad guys that, uh, once again, you can't kill people in real life, but you know what? You can. You can in fiction. Uh, And so it made it so much better than it would have been otherwise. So now looking back, and I thank him to this day. I'm like, you know what? That first book, that resonated with Simon & Schuster for some reason. And a lot of it's what happened downrange and those feelings and emotions, but a lot of it is because of what happened with with you as I was getting out. That's interesting. So... Now, when you create these characters, do you write a backstory? Do you spend time like writing out this guy's life and then sort of use pieces of that in the story? Or do you write it along while you're writing the story? 
because he was had a background so similar to mine, I didn't need to do that. Mm. So I didn't need to create. Uh, so now I am for this fourth one because now there's so many characters that it's hard to keep spelling straight and background straight and all that sort of thing. So now I have these family trees and these characters written out on Scrivener, which is how I, I write it. Which yeah, really, I use Scrivener yeah, too. I, I love it, it for stand-up. Oh, it's amazing. So, so good to organize things on the left yep. side. Yeah. So cool. You hit that button and it all turns into like a, a poster board type thing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I yeah. absolutely love Scrivener. But I didn't use that one until the third one. Up until that point, I was using Word and like copying and pasting and then scrolling and then putting it in where I wanted. And then, you know, maybe I didn't cut because I was worried it was going to delete. So now I go back and now delete it. Mm-hmm. So it's so nice to use use Scrivener like that. It just makes it so much easier to do that. So so now I do. But at the beginning, I didn't. With one novel and kind of creating, you have the story. So I did the, I wrote six or seven different uh, ideas down, like one page executive summaries as I was getting ready. And the one I wanted to start with was Savage Son. That was the one I wanted to start with. Really? But I knew the characters weren't quite at that place where I could explore the dark side of man. I needed to get readers invested in them, take him on a journey, much like uh, uh, I learned about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and the hero with a thousand faces back in 1988. I had to take him on that sort of a journey and get him to that point where I could explore the dark side of man uh, through these characters. So, uh, so I had to start with that, that first one. It was very evident. It's going to be the terminal list. Uh, that's the one. So I took that one-page executive summary, turned it into an outline. But if I came to a point in that outline where I got stuck, and this is the important part, I didn't say, ah, oh, man, readers aren't going to figure this out. They're not going to come along on me with this journey. That's not believable. I just went around it because I'm not on the battlefield. I'm solving problems on the page like I am. I'm adapting like I am on the battlefield. But you know what? I can sleep on it. And I don't have to solve this problem right now. I can get five months down the line and just continue going. And eventually I'm going to figure this problem out and it's going to work out. So I didn't let anything, any obstacle stop me as I was writing that outline. And then I took that outline and started writing. And as I figured out those problems, then I would change the outline and I would adapt it so I could have a visual representation of what was going on. And then eventually about the 75% point, then I just discarded the outline completely and just kept writing. So uh, Scrivener made that a ton easier for the third book. Because uh, doing it in Word was a pain. There is apparently a way that you could set up Word to behave like Scrivener. Oh, really? Yeah, cool. I read an article on it, and I, I I tried to do it, and I was like, I fucking give up. I'm just gonna oh. keep using Scrivener. I just yeah. love how Word. I write bits in Word because. Uh, I can get it on my phone. I can get it on a computer. I just log into Microsoft Word, and it just shows me all the files, any laptop, any computer I use, any phone I use. It just goes right to it. Whereas, like, with Scrivener, you have to, like, upload it to Dropbox and oh. then t- get it from Dropbox. Oh, bit, that's a pain. Yeah, no, I just do it in annoying. Scrivener, and then when I sent it to the editor, I did that uh, thing where it changes it to Word, and then mm-hmm. I worked in Word the rest of the time. So I didn't go mm, back to Scrivener right. after I did that. Once it's a finished product. Yeah, as finished as it could be anyway. What else has changed? changed from the time you wrote your first book to now in terms of like your process and 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 how you do it and, and what do you think you're better at now than you were when you started so the timeline is obviously compressed now. So I started writing the second one before I'd even submitted the first one to Simon & Schuster because I was always going to write those two because of that John Grisham story mm-hmm. uh, and him not being able to give a time to kill away. So I was <laughs> always going to write two. So I was already in Mozambique. I was already doing that that research over there, already writing that second one. And if both of them didn't work out, then I was going to reevaluate my life choices. But I was always going to go all in on two. Um, so now... So point being, for the second one, I wasn't yet on that year timeline because there was no deal, hadn't even gone to Simon & Schuster. And then once the first one did get to Simon & Schuster, then they plotted it out. And I still had another over a year before it came out while I'm working on the other one. So this third one is the first one that I've had to be on that year-long timeline for. 
but I've had it in my head for so long. Mm. So this fourth one now is one where things are really compressed because, uh, especially because of COVID-19, having to adapt at the last second for this book tour and having to think of things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought had to think of otherwise, like um, helping these independent bookstores. Like, how do I drive business towards them? They're hurting so bad right now. How can I help? They were, they were hurting before this, right? And then Well, people are going back to them. Yeah, they're hurting for a while, and then people were going back. Yeah. Uh, so people like that page in their hand. They like to have that experience with someone that they know in their hometown. So mm. uh, so those kind of bookstores were actually um, on, on the upswing. It was like the, the bigger ones. Um, there was a Borders that shut down years ago. Yeah. Uh, Barnes & Noble adapting-ish. They're um, kind of hurting. So... Uh, but the little ones are like, hey, they're part of a, you know, just uh, a Main Street Park City. There's a bookstore there, the Dolly's. It's yeah. right there. Yeah, been people go place. in there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. Love it. They have a little chocolate place attached to it, get some coffee, whatever. Um, so it's great. Uh, so I figured, how do I help them at the same time? Um, and what I did was do these signed book plates that you can only get through those independent bookstores. So if anybody wants a signed book, that's where they have to go. Mm. So did that. I have some merchandise on my site. All of that, it was already going 100% to these veteran-focused foundations that I had some sort of a touch point with because they'd help friends of mine or whatever else. But now it's all going Center for Disaster Philanthropy, COVID-19 Response Fund. Um, so they're things to talk about on interviews rather than, oh, I just have a new book out. Uh, you can talk about the, how you're trying to help as you're launching or talk about preparedness, talk about what the enemy is learning by watching our response to COVID-19 and how they're incorporating that into future battle plans, uh, those sorts of things. So I had to adapt, do virtual book signings, that sort of thing, or Q&As, uh, using the technology that wasn't available 10 or 20 years ago, certainly 30, certainly 40 years ago uh, to, to today. So I had to spend all that time doing, doing that. So uh, point being, this fourth one, when I get back from here, it's all in back on book four, uh, which is which will be great because I love writing. Uh, that's what I love to do. And the other side of it, the business side of it that we've been talking about, that is interesting to me because I'm learning something new. And I love learning new things. And I wouldn't be learning about branding and marketing and all this sort of thing if I didn't have a product, if I didn't have a, a book. And, it, it, uh, and I can help other people as they're getting out of the military, starting other businesses that aren't even writing related at all. Uh, like I can help them and talk to them about my experience and what I've learned and how I've adapted uh, because I had to. No one's going to hand this stuff to you. You have to go out there, prove yourself, get after it, do the work, uh, and be smart about it. You have to study that landscape. So I studied social media for like a year before I even did my first post. And uh, But I saw what people, were, people really? were doing. Yeah, I saw. You studied it. I studied. I saw what do I like, what do I not like, what's appropriate, what's not. Did you write um, this stuff down or did you just keep it on the head? Nope, kept that in my head. Uh, that stuff's pretty obvious, like what's appropriate and what's not. <laughs> like when someone walks into that general store, very, yeah. very, uh, very clear what's uh, how you should treat someone, whether they come in yelling and screaming or they come in asking for directions. Like, right. Same, same right. thing. So that's some basic stuff that a lot of people don't don't quite get. How fortuitous is it that you're writing about infectious diseases and then this shit goes down? I mean, if if there's ever a person who got a gift by a tragedy <laughs> it's crazy because i'd done all that research in the fall uh and into the early part of the year did you go to galveston to the cdc you go no, to the, no no i talked to doctors that have been involved in infectious diseases and with the weaponization of infectious diseases mm -hmm. uh and then i read there's some books out there uh, a lot of stuff online but the online stuff you have to be able really careful about and check with other people that really know right. what they're what they're doing even though it's fiction um so i'd done all that part of it ahead of time. So what really changed for me as far as what I'm doing now and what I'm incorporating from this is what our response has been to COVID-19 because it's put obviously our economy into a tailspin. So what's the enemy doing? 
the enemy is looking at that and realizing, oh, look, this, this invisible virus has done to the United States what the Soviet Union couldn't do in 40 plus years of trying. Uh, so how do we incorporate that into future battle plans? Can we have a strategy even of failure? What if there's a, a threat of a bioattack? What if there's a failed bioattack somewhere? It's still going to affect that economy, especially right now with us being so gun shy about all these sorts of things. So mm. what are they taking from that? And what are they learning to apply going forward? So for my fourth novel, I'm taking those lessons of what the enemy is learning from this and how they're going to, how I think they're going to apply it going forward and incorporating that into a fictional narrative. So in, uh, in that sense, you know, I'm trying to, yeah, learn, just always, always learning. It's always important to, to learn and apply it going forward. And you, you're, you're also, you're in the middle of writing this story, but you're also living a life of a person that actually has to deal with this coronavirus pandemic where the whole world is kind of shut down. Like, as a, just as a human being, when you're dealing with this, what's frustrating for you about how everything is going down? I, you know, I think it's what we just talked about as far as people not taking these lessons seriously going forward and making this a stronger country because of this. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you get knocked down, you get back up, you're stronger for it. You've learned something. Uh, like we talk about in jiu-jitsu, you know, it's either you win or you learn. And, uh, yeah. and so what are we going to learn from that? Are, and are we going to apply that? going forward. So like the whole thing with the Iran crisis where yes, the, the hostage exactly. situation, we learned from that. We'd applied those lessons and we were more prepared for nine 11 as a special operations force, uh, because of it. So for this, I worry, just like you said, are people going to go back to their old ways after this? Uh, they can't and, wait to, they so, can't wait to slide yeah. back into their old ways. Yeah. So are we going to be a stronger citizenry? Maybe, maybe a certain percentage take these lessons to heart? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I think that's probably the it's it's knowing that people expect the government to take care of them. Uh, and that's the expectation. Yeah. Is that the, not you. It's not you, you don't have to take care of yourself or your family. The government's going to get They're looking do it. for a daddy. Yeah. How do I get that? What? Twelve hundred. Whatever that whatever money they handed out. Uh, oh, great. Well, you know what's even better? You being strong, self-reliant, self-sufficient, and having your kids look up and see how you're handling this and say, oh, well, mom and dad are either in the kitchen talking about how much they're worried about paying that rent or that mortgage, or they're in that kitchen maybe talking about it, even if they are worried, in a way like, hey, how do we do this better next time? How do we prepare as on the other side of this? And what are the things we can do now to get better prepared if this happens two months from now, a year from now? five years from now, and the kids can see that too. Or they see mom and dad in the kitchen talking about, hey, we are so lucky that we prepared for this. We were prepared financially. We had a little food here, um, whatever it is. And so the kids will take those those lessons on, take those to heart, because they're very impressionable right now, especially as mm. we have 14, uh, 12, and 9. And they're definitely processing this. And they're yeah. catching things on the news. And they're talking to friends on their on social media. Um, they're texting back and forth, all that sort of thing. So this can either make them stronger citizens going forward uh, or they can see mom and dad, oh, look, mom and dad relied on government. We came out the other side of this. We got this check and nothing really changed. So, mm. oh, what lesson are they going to take going forward right. from that? So it's a very important time, uh, not just for how you deal with this but, and how you get through it and how you uh, move forward better for it, but because of the lessons that we're teaching our kids, uh, whether we mean to or not. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a conscious thing. Like they're going to take lessons. And as parents, it's up to us to figure out what those lessons are going to be. And we can morph it and make them stronger, more self-reliant going forward. Like our daughter sees our, fr our freezers full of elk and moose and she we pull that out we frost it and she's she's a part of it because she knows she got this elk in colorado last year now she's feeding our family how old is your daughter she's 14 wow she shot her first elk at 14 she shot her first elk at 10 whoa yeah, new mexico yeah no kidding damn Crazy. you got a, a tag in new mexico at 10 yeah so somebody uh it was a retirement gift 
a great guy. Uh, and I said, you know, she gave me two, one for me and one for my wife, or one for me and one for my daughter. And uh, I was like, you know what? I got an elk last year um, in New Mexico, public land. It was crazy, crazy. But I was like, you know, can I transfer that to uh, to my wife and have my wife and daughter go do this together? And I'm with them also and have a bit of family experience. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. That's, let's do it. And uh, so she was 10, yeah, standing off sticks, 300 wow. some yards, one shot. And the guide was, uh, he said, miss. And she'd been hunting before. She's been hunting since she was seven. And she is good. And I was like, oh, you know, that was a tough shot. Uh, hey, uh, you know, it's okay. How'd you feel about that shot? She's like, I felt good. I'm like, oh, it's just a 10-year-old saying that because they don't want to kind of lose face in front of the guide and mm -hmm. mom's there and dad's there. And uh, I'm like, well, it's okay. You know, it's okay to miss. Everybody misses. Guess um, let's learn from it, move forward. She's like, I didn't miss. And so I go up there. There's no blood. There's no anything. We we think we're tracking it. We walk up. Like, eh, yeah, she, you know, she missed. And we walk back down, and there's this little tiny just rivet in the ground. And there it was, 20 yards away. Wow. Done. Yeah, amazing. I'll show you a picture after. So the guy feel stupid? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, miss. But it really just went all the way through, and you saw he saw an impact behind, you know, one oh, shot. Wow. And, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's the problem, right? They see the dust kick up behind the animal, and they think that it's a miss. Yeah. So yeah, yeah but she. So we have that meat from this last year in Colorado. Oh, and that's amazing. We talk about it with the family, and she's like, she knows that she provided that for all of us. And we, that's got to be very exciting and, and yeah. rewarding for her. And then our little guy, he's uh, he he got his first animal in Africa this last year. Whoa. Yeah, so I went back. That's to a the, crazy place to get your first animal. Yeah, so crazy. So uh, I'd been over there doing some more research. I went to South Africa to help train up an anti-poaching unit because uh, they hadn't used Glocks, hadn't used M4s. I have a little bit of experience with both those weapon systems, uh, and I wanted to do some research in the uh, the art and science of man tracking. So I went to South Africa, helped train up this anti-poaching unit. It was an amazing experience, and then they asked me to come back as a thank you to uh, with my family. Uh, over the over the summer, so uh, came back with my with my family and our little guy got his first animal there. They put the blood on his cheeks. I have this oh, amazing wow. picture of him in the back of the Land Cruiser on the way back. He's he's never had a haircut at age nine, so his blonde hair is blowing in the wind. It's awesome. Uh, and then we use every piece of it. That's what's great about over there is they see you use much more than we use over here. I mean, stomach linings, like everything gets used in Africa, which is cool for them to see because they think we're using it all here. They see us taking that rib meat mm -hmm. and that neck meat and all the rest of right. it. But over there, they see everything get used, uh, which is a pretty cool thing for them to experience at that, uh, at that young age. So, yeah, that um, is, that is a very amazing thing for them. That's, so it that's helps fantastic. them be self-reliant too. It's, and they see the people out there working on the land cruisers. They see all, everything you have to do in Africa that you can just call someone to fix the plumbing or call someone cause the electricity's out or whatever, you know, you fix it yourself. Uh, cause you have to, how did you get to be a land cruiser fanatic? How'd that happen? Gosh, you know, I found out about icon 2006 or so, I think it was maybe five. And it's from seeing them overseas. So I saw the Hiluxes first in Afghanistan, 2003, mm -hmm. I think it was. Yeah, they 2003. Just last forever. Yeah, you're seeing these things over there, and then you're seeing what we're doing to them. We have some mechanics over there that are bolting on armor, and they're doing things to the engine, and they're putting in these uh, radio console stuff for our secure communications. And they're like, wow, this is pretty cool. And then I saw the evolution of the Hilux over the next. 15 years and got to see these things purpose built from a you know, factory to an aftermarket place that then does all that stuff that we were doing in Afghanistan with, with screwdrivers and, and the rest of it. I uh, got to see what those look like. And that was pretty sweet. And you just see how much abuse they can take and what they're going up and over. And so I think it was seeing the Hilux and then looking into, oh, maybe I'll get a Tacoma when I get back because I saw these things over there and these things last forever. And it was amazing. I had some crazy experiences in them. And then I was like, oh, 
Land Cruisers. This is pretty sweet. And I just, it was a natural thing for me to like older stuff and more classic stuff. And then to also like classic stuff that looks old, but mm-hmm. is really new and can really, <laughs> can really gas it down. Well, Land so Cruisers, those, those 62s, just like uh, that Porsche that I have out there where the metal is thicker and yeah. heavier gauge, like you shut those doors. Awesome. You're like, oh, this is not a, it's just different. They're yep. just, they just made, they're made different. Yep. So I started doing my research, and I think one of the first things that pops up when you put in, like, you know, restoration for uh, Land Cruisers is, is Icon. Yeah, and, there's uh, a bunch of other people doing it now, but Jonathan oh, yeah. gets really mad. Jonathan, I mean, he gets mad at people doing <laughs> shitty jobs of restoring oh, yeah. Broncos or shitty jobs of restoring Land Cruisers. Yeah. And I guess he's got every right to. I mean, he's so meticulous, and they're it's so— incredible. What they do is just incredible. I mean, it's amazing. Like, it's one of those build-it-and-they-will-come type yep. businesses. Oh, yeah. You know, who is going to buy a 3,000 man hour restoration <laughs> job on a yeah. 95 Land Cruiser? It's not right. not that many. But, it's a niche market. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he's, he owns that fucking niche. Yeah. You know, and on so many other cars too. I, I'm so fortunate that he's, you know, down the road. Yeah. I can hang out with him and talk to him. Yeah. He's, he's and I listen to him guy. on your podcast. I listen yeah. to him there. So, and then I drove up from LA and gave him, had them start working on my uh, FJ62 when we were in San Diego, just doing a, a stage one, just kind of making sure all the belts and stuff were good and, you know, whatever, just kind of making sure it wasn't going to fall apart. Uh, but I always wanted to do that stage three or that icon type restoration. Mm-hmm. And so I always had my eye on that. And then my Land Cruiser broke down. Uh, my wife was driving it, and the oil came out, engine seized, crack engine block. Like, uh, not that it's her fault. Uh, but anyway, so it sat in our driveway for a couple of years uh, as I'm getting out of the military. And uh, that was kind of a bummer seeing it there. But get that deal. And uh, so one of the first things I did was send that up to Jonathan and get in line. I had to get in line. Mine was behind yours. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you're just behind Joe. So I had to wait for your 80 to get down. I think they have a few of them working at the same time. But uh, they took a cool picture with, with yours. And mine, yours was just getting done or they were frame off or whatever. And then mine was there kind of looking dilapidated in the back, just waiting. You know, because you have to, 18 months you had to wait. Almost that's two a years. long yeah. wait. Yeah. A, yeah, that's a crazy. So that was cool. So it just showed up the other day. And of course, I'm not, I don't want to really, I want to show people or whatever. But at the same time, people are hurting right now, even though it's yeah. been in the works for a long time. It's not appropriate to, you know, show it on yeah, social Yeah, this is media not right a now. time to be no. flossing. No. Yeah. It's sweet, though. That thing is legit. So I love it. So it's natural for me to put them in the books and That's cool. and, uh, and use it like that. And I want to say thank you to Jonathan for doing that. So just like I put Sitka in the books for my friend John Hart, who started Sitka, like I think it's on the first or second page of my first novel is Sitka gear. So, you know, that's woven in there. And I just love to do that sort of thing. No, it was cool. It gave me a bunch of smiles. The All, all the different things, the Black Rifle Coffee, Sitka, nice. Dudley. Yeah. All, Barklow all the, in there. Yeah, Barklow. <laughs> all, all that stuff is very cool. Now, when when you're in the middle of this book now, um, what it, what is your timeline like? Uh, how far how far have you been? Like how how long have you been writing on this uh, fourth book? So I outlined it. I had the idea for a while, but I was still finishing up the third one. So on the way to Russia, I outlined it because I didn't have my computer. And when you no when you outlined it, how how do you do that? So this time I used I. The third one, I outlined it in Word, and then I got my Scrivener set up, and then I transferred it over and did the writing in Word. So this one, I did the outline in Scrivener, and I'm writing it in Scrivener mm. as well. So I have those little the post things or whatever they call them in mm-hmm. Scrivener with a little description of the chapter. So I've outlined it that way. But I started doing it longhand because I didn't have my computer with me on the way to Russia. I just didn't want to take it. Didn't right. want all that information sucked out when I walked through customs. So just legal pad and just wrote it out. And uh, just arrows and things and asterisks and all that, just a mm-hmm. mess. Uh, so I did that back then, got home, finished up book three, and then started writing 
book for, but I'm also doing the research. So you have to, I'm diving into books, I'm talking to those doctors, uh, as I'm talking to them, I'm getting other ideas about how to move the plot forward, uh, different things that can test the protagonist. So this theme of this next one is really uh, the ethics, morality, and legality behind targeted assassinations. Uh, and the bioweapons piece is really forms the foundation of that, but really what the protagonist is struggling with is targeted assassinations. And who is he today? Is he now an assassin? He's been a hunter. He's been a soldier. Uh, he went after these people that wronged his family and his troop and, uh, and put them all in the ground in that first book. And now he has a, he has both, it's a mixture of a personal and professional track that he's now going to take going forward because he still has a little unfinished business to take care of and needs to use the United States government to track these guys down that he still needs to needs to get um so in uh as i'm doing that and interviewing all these people i'm thinking about how that works and i'm reading a book it's um almost done with it it's called rise first and kill um by ronan uh bergman and it's really about the state of israel and because really we think of targeted assassinations and we don't really associate it with our government i mean we do and we've done it before and we just did it in january um and but israel it's much more closely associated with israel from its inception up until today and it's a fascinating book so i'm getting lots of ideas from there i'm reading david kilcullen's it's called uh, the snakes snakes and dragons uh dragon and the snakes um and he's a fascinating guy who's a counterterrorist advisor for Petraeus during the surge. He's become a good friend. Um, and so I'm reading, doing all that research, which helps me move the plot forward. So I'm writing it. I'm, I'm touching up those outlines and I'm working that research into the plot. So at this stage, I've written probably about half of it. And it's hard to say because you never know when you're going to get another idea or what an edit's going to take too long. Mm. But I'd say I'd say a little more than half, uh, even though it's all outlined. I know where I'm going, know what I need to do. And that first draft is due in uh, mid-June. When you when you write out an outline, but then in the middle of your writing, do you ever have like these like Stephen King apparently doesn't write outlines. Oh, he's he, a, they call him a pantser. Yeah, so you're right by the seat of your pants. Ah, yeah. That, yeah. What what are your thoughts on that? I mean, like when you read that he does that, and he's, I mean, I'm a giant Stephen King fan. I mean, he's probably written some of the most amazing horror novels ever. Yep. Prob I mean, not probably has. And what an amazing story also about yeah. doing the work, being yeah. persistent, being resilient. Yeah. Incredible. Everything. I didn't get hit by a bus. I know. Oh, yeah, my yeah God, van, van. Some fucking idiot not Jeez. paying attention. And every bone in his body's broken. Insane. And the story in, in on writing about him starting back up again and Incredible. his wife setting him up. And, um, but what do you think about someone who writes like that? I mean, with this incredible results. I mean, is yeah, no, it's all also. It's all by, by the way, a lot of cocaine, and <laughs> cigarettes, and alcohol. Like his earlier shit, like The Shining, and apparently he doesn't even remember writing Cujo. Wow. Yeah, he talked about that. He was so I fucked up, that. he didn't even remember writing it. Hey, I mean, it, it yeah. makes me want to do more drugs. <laughs> like, it's and it's, I do think about that when I'm up yeah. late and it's three thirty in the morning. I'm exhausted. I know yeah. the kids are going to be up at little six thirty seven or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I mean, I need a little little, little bump right here to keep me going. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it worked for Stephen King, but, uh, but he yeah. wrote he wrote just the craziest shit. But I, your stuff's pretty fucking crazy too. But your stuff <laughs> is crazy in a sense that, like, I think these things really happen. You know, like you, like even like the tortures, and I wanted to talk to you about that too. Like the torture scene, like um, there's, I've have I've seen so many pencil necks talk about, and I don't be rude about, I shouldn't even said that, but people who talk about torture saying that torture doesn't work. I'm like, how can you say torture doesn't work? Like by what statistic? And I've seen people say these we shouldn't torture because torture doesn't work. And I'm like, how do you? First of all, how do you know? Yeah. Have you tortured someone? 
Like, how do you know? Like, where are you? What are you basing this off? And why are you saying it with such authority such, and resolve? So, yeah, authority and resolve and conviction that you know based on statistics of something you read that torture doesn't work. It seems to me like if people have information and they don't want to give up that information, yeah, we we don't want to think of ourselves as being this barbaric type of civilization that would torture someone to get information out of them. But also, if you want to look at it pragmatically, that is how you would get people to talk. So to say that torture doesn't work, and in fact, people who are tortured will say anything, and well, that's, says who? Yeah. I, I hate that kind of conversation because you are, because it, it's an it's an anti-military conversation in a lot of ways because it's the same it's the same kind of mentality that sort of dismisses all sorts of tactics that are used to protect people that don't they have the luxury of not knowing what needs to be done or how it is done. Yeah, so it's very it's very complex and yet it's very simple. And I obviously use this in my writing, uh, and I did in that first book, because the protagonist had to become that terrorist, become that insurgent. Yeah. So he had to adopt those tactics, and he had essentially to, had to abandon everything that he'd been fighting for uh, for the past 16 years uh, to go after these people that wronged his family and, and his troop. So as far as the, the torture stuff goes, so I got to explore it in a fictional sense. So in real life, um, it's important to talk about these things with your troops. So at the tactical leadership level, where, where I was my entire career, whether I was just a brand new guy, enlisted guy, or a troop commander at the end, um, it was important, especially once 9-11 happened, to talk about these things before we're in a situation where we called it, first we call it BIT, first we call it battlefield interrogation, and then it became uh, a TQ, tactical questioning, a lot more PC to call it tactical questioning rather than battlefield interrogation. Um, but you had to talk about it ahead of time so that your guys would know what was appropriate ahead of time so they're not in a situation where an IED has just gone off, one of our guys is killed, and now we have someone we think is responsible for that, and there's one or two of us, three of us in this room with him. What are those guys going to do? Well, they're emotional. And maybe we haven't talked about it ahead of time. So what are they going to do? They're going to, well, who knows? But point being, before we get there, during training, it can't just be a brief by like a, a pencil neck lawyer that comes in and says, all right, this is not right. This is yes, what's appropriate. This exactly. Is not, it can't be that. It has to be incorporated into the training. It has to be discussed by people that are trusted. Um, and so that when someone's in that situation, he knows what one is appropriate because of the second and third order effects that may come from it. Um, yeah, you might want to put a bullet in that guy. Uh, you might want to torture him, whatever. Uh, but second and third order effects of doing that um, could be more devastating to this unit, uh, to the the uh, our, our strategy uh, as a whole that we're trying to accomplish over there. So you need to talk about it ahead of time. So for me, it was important that for the guys to know that we have to maintain the moral high ground because there's very few things that separate us from our enemy when you get down to it. Uh, you're both killing, you're both killing each other. Um, and there has to be something that makes it different for us. And that's maintaining the moral high ground. We do not deliberately target civilians. That's a big differentiation. They, they target civilians on purpose to get the political end that they want. Um, so that is a huge differentiator right there. Um, the torture thing is so interesting because of definitions. So is making someone uncomfortable 
torture. Right, is waterboarding right. torture. Is that torture? Well, they did it yeah. to my SEER class. SEER is Survival, Evasion, Resistance, Escape. And we all go through this training. Uh, back then when I went through it, it was based on Vietnam era type uh, uh, experiences that people had had uh, in, in Vietnam. And uh, it's morphed a little bit over time. But uh, it's they waterboarded people. And they waterboarded people in my class. If you did something that they thought, the instructors thought, would get you killed in real life or get somebody else killed in real life. So uh, being a model prisoner, it did not happen to me. But to my buddy, he got waterboarded because uh, he did something that the instructors thought would get you killed. And it's crazy. They put you in this prison camp where they're speaking a different language, a made-up language. There's sights. You look like you're in a prison camp because it's built like that. There's smells. They're cooking weird things. So the smells feel like you're in a different country. So all these different sensory uh, inputs are telling you that you're not in the United States anymore. And you get slapped around. They call it camp slappy. So you're getting slapped around, So which is you know, different. Uh, but you get waterboarded if you do something wrong. Uh, so is that torture? Are they torturing U.S. service members or is it just making them uncomfortable for a while? Um, so these definitions are very important when we start talking. We put somebody in, sitting in a corner and, you're, and they're, they're in that seat position and they're not sleeping. We're keeping right. them up at night. Is, is that torture? Well, we kept Bud's students up in SEAL training for almost a week. Um, so is that torture? I, I guess it's self-imposed. I mean, we're all volunteering to do it. Right. And this guy's not volunteering to sit there in the corner. Uh, but we also snatched him off the battlefield, and we think he might have some information. And it's putting him in an uncomfortable seated position. Is that torture? Some would say yes. So it's crazy in that when it becomes politicized and the enemy gets to use it, and when I say the en enemy, I also talk, mean all their social media-type networks, all journalists that are sympathetic to the cause or whatever, as soon as that can be morphed, and called torture and become a distraction and become something that undermines the mission as a whole, then you have to look at it and say, okay, what are we getting by what we're doing in Guantanamo? What, 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 how versus how much is that hurting and helping the enemy's recruiting efforts? And I don't know where that is. I don't know what those numbers look like or where that tipping point is. But as soon as the enemy can get something and use it for their own benefit, like having black sites, if we didn't know that black sites existed, uh, you know, that would be wonderful. But everyone knows that black sites exist. It's Explain all, black sites. It's just a uh, a base that uh, is typically set up by another government agency with the knowledge of a different government. Um, and so it's not in the United States. It's not on U.S. soil uh, to let the other government do the things that they can do that we can't, essentially. So it's an off-the-books type site, but everyone knows what it is because it's been on cover of the front page of the New York Times and everywhere else. As soon as that becomes something that the enemy can then leverage, at what point do, does, does it hurt us more than help us to have those? And at what point does it hurt us more than help us to, quote-unquote, torture someone or continue waterboarding or to put somebody in these seated positions and to have that be the distraction? And I don't know the answer, um, but it's something that needs to be thought of and talked about. And at the tactical level, the guys have to know that uh, we need to maintain that moral high ground. Uh, that's the only thing in a lot of cases that differentiates us from the enemy, and we have to hold that ground. That's imperative. So as a leader, you got to talk about it, and the guys have to know that once you have somebody, much like a police officer here in the States, once they have you cuffed and you're on the ground, uh, like it's over. Like your job now becomes to protect that person. That's how it has to be. That's what makes us different. That makes you different from that criminal. That makes us different from the enemy. Um, they're gonna if they have us in that position, they're gonna behead us and they're gonna hold our heads up on TV and they're gonna use it. For us, our job is now to protect that person with our life. That's the difference between us 
and the enemy at the base level. So it's important to talk about that, important for the guys to, to understand it, uh, so that when they're in that position and it's a guy's first deployment and his friend is wounded or dead and he thinks this guy is behind it, that he doesn't execute him when he has his hands cuffed behind him. So it's important stuff to talk about, important stuff to think about, and uh, uh, and it's it's tough. It's, it's a tough thing to grapple with. And those those are the variables, right? Public perception, whether or not that perception or the, the, the knowledge of things that have been done could be used against our troops or used against our, our country as a whole and in social media, in perception. But the, the idea that th- this is what, what has driven me crazy about it is that those hard, fast statements that torture doesn't work. And I'm like, what? I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, what are you, I mean, what are you I saying? think it probably works in some situations, maybe not in other. I mean, who knows? But when people say that, I'm like, I bet I can get you to say yeah, this. Exactly. I bet I can get you to tell me where your fucking car keys are. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Like, what are you saying? Like, right. well, of course they, it works. Yeah. Like, the idea that it does, like, and, and they'll say it, and it's always really left-wing people. That'll stay statistically torture doesn't work. Yeah, what's that? And they say, like, like, who's, who's been keeping these stats since the yeah, beginning of time? Like, bitch, have you ever seen anybody tortured? Like, what are you yeah. talking about? Right. If I kept you up, you would tell me everything. All I'd have to do is keep you up. Yep. No, I mean, there's a reason people have been doing it from the beginning of time. I'm yeah. sure in some places it didn't work or whatever. Um, but at, at that outside that tactical level, when we're talking about um, that next stage where the world knows about it, where media knows about it, where they're driving that story and they're helping the enemy by shining a light on these things that may or may not work. It doesn't matter yeah. whether it works or not. Uh, it's, uh, it's detrimental at this point. Uh, and whatever that point is, um, then it's time to abandon it. Do you find that now that you're a prominent voice in, in the world of fiction authors and the fact that your you're, you're novels have a lot to do with like real places and real things and real issues, do you get asked questions? Do you, do you get asked to give statements or get, have your opinion on things where you have to kind of measure it and go, is there a, a benefit to this? Is there a, a, a risk to like to be talking I, about yeah, it? Yeah, am I alienating people, or is this uh, something where you can use your 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 knowledge and your position as a platform to kind of like give your perspective on things from an educated point of view? Yeah, so it's it's uh, for me, it is very. It's hard for me not to tell the truth. Like I am, I'm the worst liar on the earth, and my wife will let, will tell you. Uh, so it, it it's very natural for me to. Uh, answer honestly, but then also to be thoughtful. Uh, and that's why the no- novels, I think also another reason they resonated with Simon & Schuster is because it's thoughtful violence. That's how I think of it. Um, it's not just, ah, oh, shoots the guy in the knee or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's thoughtful violence, which is why those, ter- those torture scenes are so intricate and involved. Dude, that um, one with the <laughs> Russian mobster is f- heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some good ones. So I want kind of want that to be a uh, kind of a hallmark of the series is that there are things that people haven't seen before. And it's not just extra violence. It's thoughtful violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't worry about alienating. Um, it's... It's, it's more about me being honest because uh, people can tell. Like if you, especially today, like maybe 20 years ago, you could have hidden it you, behind managers and uh, reputation, man, whatever you call it. Uh, today, you can't really hide. If you're on social media, like I think eventually if you have a thousand some posts, people are going to glean and you're doing it. And it's not obvious that it's just a manager that's doing it. And it's a picture of, you know, you are not really, it's not you. It's obvious it's not you. I'm talking right. about when it's obvious it's you. It's hard, I think, to not be authentic and to let something slip through. Yeah, um, so I think eventually it slips it, through. Yeah, I think, I mean, and you can see things that aren't appropriate and you're like, oh my, why would this person say that? Well, you know why? Because it's them. 
Like that's that's why. Uh, or they were that, drunk. <laughs> maybe yeah. Maybe they were a little well, late at night. Also, like people don't understand the ramifications of posting things that and like you were saying how you got brought in by NCIS that. Uh, one thing could be taken out of context oh, yeah. and, and used against you in a really weird way. Oh, yeah. And I used to think, oh, no, we're all on the same side. And, you know, it, it's all mm. about the... No. People are after a win that in that situation. That had to be a really disturbing revelation. Oh, it was. And that's why that book is so powerful in that mm. scene and why uh, why how those guys go down is <laughs> so violent. Um, because it was therapeutic for me. <laughs> I didn't have to actually go out and do it myself. I yeah. got to do it on the pages of a, a thriller. Uh, but for me, it's interesting. So I do get asked. I am. I do go on different shows now as a military analyst. Uh, they ask me things and I answer honestly and I try to do it in a thoughtful way. So example being the, uh, uh, the was the CEO of the Roosevelt that uh, was relieved uh, last couple of weeks yes. because he wrote this letter and you know was framed by senior level officials as he sent out essentially like an open letter. It sounded like they made it sound like he sent it out to his entire address book and he went above the chain of command and uh, so he was fired and it didn't go through the right proper channels. And uh, it smelled weird to me from the beginning because you don't get to be in command of a nuclear powered aircraft carrier by being like, eh, just some guy. Right. Like, you know the military. You're in for like 25 years at this point. You're a captain. Uh, and I would be shocked if he had not exhausted every other avenue to try to get out what he needed to have done. And he's responsible for fighting that aircraft carrier. And he's also responsible for the men under his command. And he and now we have like 900 cases on that ship. And that's it's after a corona. It's we should explain to people that the the the, the, tr the ship was infected. Yep. So they had a couple cases. I think they had three to start with uh, on an aircraft carrier that docked in Thailand or something like that. Uh, you know, maybe in January, early February, something like that. Before really things got out of control. So you're in an aircraft carrier, and the only place worse than a, a ship in a circumstance like this with an infectious disease is probably a submarine. But he saw what was happening. And he saw it starting to spread. He saw it as saw that it was impossible to abide by social distancing guidelines. Uh, and once you do, when you actually have it, not just social distancing, but once you have it, how you isolate somebody, impossible to do on a ship. And so he saw that. And then the story is that he wrote a letter, wrote a letter, and it got picked up by the Chronicle in Northern California, and that it just went out to this huge number of people. So it went out to twenty people. It was, I've read the letter. It's four pages. It's very, very well done, very uh, thoughtful. It gives two courses of action. One, if we're at war and how we can keep fighting the ship. And two, if we're not at war, we need to take care of these guys and be ready for when war comes. So it's very clearly delineated in these four pages, very professional. It's on Navy letterhead, and it went out to 20 people. And for me, I thought, you know what, this is very strange that... Uh, that he's being attacked like this from senior level leaders, making it seem like he sent it out to his entire like Gmail address book. No, it's still usnavy.mil or whatever. It's not a secret, uh, secret communication. But there's official Navy emails that aren't secret as well. And yeah, it, it bypassed the chain of command, I guess. Uh, but that, at some point, I think is his responsibility. He needs to keep that ship fighting. And who knows what the personal relationship was between him and the guy above him or whatever. I, I think there's something. The investigation will show it. And now. And then the, the Secretary of the Navy flies from Washington, D.C. to Guam to give a speech to these people on the aircraft carrier. And he says that the, the captain that has just been relieved of duty was either stupid or incompetent if he thought that what he wrote in that email wasn't going to get out to the press. Meanwhile, the ironic part is that whole thing 
is videotaped. That whole speech is taped, and there's audio that makes it out to the media. So that's the funny part for me. But then also, so then he's fired a couple of days later. Oh Jesus! And then the uh, the oh, secretary of the army or the secretary of defense now writes a letter, an open letter that says essentially the same thing as the captain of the aircraft carrier uh, wrote a few days earlier uh, that got him fired. So it's really interesting. And I went on some of these uh, some of these shows uh, and got to sit down with um, a couple of different people with military backgrounds. And I was the only one saying that something doesn't smell right here. And this guy has a responsibility to, to fight that ship, to, to support his, his soldiers or his sailors. And uh, something's just not right about this. And now we'll see what happens. But, but point being, yeah, I do get asked about these things. And I answer honestly because the, one of the other guys were saying on this show was that, nope, chain of command. He didn't follow the chain of command. And he should have uh, followed that chain of command regardless. You know, the typical Navy type line. Right. But being from special operations and being a free thinker, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be creative. We're supposed to think, uh, think uh, kind of red cell things from the enemy side, think about it from that side of the house um, and do what, what we do, which is why we get in trouble a lot of the time in special operations, because we're kind of uh, not military. And uh, I mean, we're military, but you know, we like to like to not break the rules, but we like to bend them to a certain extent to get what we need done. Uh, and that's just very natural for us. But uh, when you're sitting down with people that aren't like that uh, and don't think that way, it's kind of interesting. But point being, I do get asked about these things, and I don't really measure it against if uh, am I going to alienate people uh, or not. It's just, hey, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be open, I'm going to be authentic, and that's what people can trust about me. And they can trust about my writing, is that when they read that, they know that I just didn't get it from somebody else. Like, it's a part of me somehow, and it's very personal, even though it's fiction. And that's what you can trust. And if my protagonist is using a certain weapon or a certain knife or a certain, it's not just that I Googled Navy SEAL knife and someone, or someone saying, and then he pulled out his Navy SEAL dagger instead. Like, no, that's not how it goes. You're going to know exactly how, who made it, the relationship, all that sort of thing. So what people can trust is that they're going to get my honest assessment. And that's what I owe the guys in the teams. I owed them my honest assessment. That's what I owe the people above me in the chain of command. Uh, no matter what it did, I owed them my honest assessment because that's what they could trust. Uh, they, they didn't have to worry about whether uh, I'm just telling them something just because I think that's what they want to hear, uh, or I'm looking to get ahead because I never wanted this to be a career in the military. I was just in there to fight and, uh, and to lead. Um, but that's what they can trust is my honest assessment. And so that's how I, I deal with today. I'm just going to answer honestly, but it will be thoughtful. It's not going to be like an, an off-the-cuff craziness that I then have to go back and retract, or I hope it's not going to be. It's going to be thoughtful because that's what, I, that's what I owed the guys also was that thoughtful assessment, both up and down the chain. So that's just natural for me to do and what you're going to get today. Well, this mindset and this the, the discipline and the authenticity, it comes out in your writing, man. I know I started with the last one, and I have to start. Yeah. You were a little bummed out that I was like starting with the last <laughs> one, right? Well, most people get invested in the character. Like People ask me, like, can I start with this third one? And the publisher wants me to say, yes, yeah, start with the third oh, one. Like, could, buy listen, it now. Let me tell you, you could absolutely but, start with the third one. Oh, Maybe I'll you. be more invested if I start Maybe? with the first one. I don't know, man, but the third one was fucking great. Oh, I, I awesome. loved it. And, Thank uh, you. I'm going to get into the first two now. Um, awesome. Listen, you knocked it out of the park, man. It was an so amazing, amazing book. I'm, I'm excited to read the first two now. Awesome. Um, people can follow you. Is it Jack Car USA? It's Jack Car on... USA on the socials. Uh, most active on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, there is a Facebook, but three was too much. So yeah, uh, yeah I, Jack I feel Car the exact same way. USA and then officialjackcar.com is the uh, is the website, and people can go deep dive into weapons or knives or gear on that sort of thing. So, All right, man. Yeah. Well, well, thanks. Brother, I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, and thank, thank you, you for what you do for uh, for hunting and for those of us that are self reliant and for giving this uh, really opening people's eyes to to what they can do to be better citizens and better prepared going forward. So thank you for all you do. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Yeah, man, that was three hours. dude.